Welcome to the Black Duck Revival Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Wilkins. I'm excited to have you join me as I speak with a fascinating collection of folks, all of whom have in common that they've made a way for themselves by finding an intersection between thoughtful consideration and the tactile work of getting their hands dirty. This is an examination of intention, capability, and craft. It's where philosophy meets the blue-collar work ethic and where I find real value. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. This week, I am joined by Joshua Henson of Ada, Oklahoma. That's located on the Chickasaw Indian Reservation there in kind of southeastern Oklahoma. This is a dude that I met, you know, just like on Instagram, kind of became more and more interested in what he was doing and his perspective uh, and ended up saying yes to a very generous invitation to go on out to his place there in Oklahoma on the reservation, do a little bit of duck hunting, but mostly just kind of get to meet him and see what he's doing. He's, he's, he's really doing some very special stuff in a very special place. Uh, and we'll go into much more detail in, in this podcast, but Joshua's really kind of a lot of different things. He's a incredibly talented visual artist as far as painting and drawing. He's also a hunter. He's a waterfowler. He's a, you know, a dog guy. He's making hand carved wooden decoys very much in that old kind of North Carolina tradition, but very much influenced by his his own Native American heritage. And some of the show pieces that he's making are, incorporate some tribal symbolism and art uh, that's, that's very important to, <clears throat> excuse me, his understanding of himself and the world uh, as a Chickasaw man. Professionally, he is a linguist. He's a Chickasaw linguist. He's one of a very small group of people who is fluent in Chickasaw. And, you know, uh, he spent about the last 20 years really dedicating himself to uh, becoming an expert in that language and then uh, also developing language programs, uh, working with Rosetta Stone and within the uh, Chickasaw tribal organization to not have this be a language that disappears, right? To have this be something that continues into perpetuity. Uh, and we talk a lot about that language. We talk about that as a cultural identifier. We talk about Josh's work as an artist and as a waterfowler. And we really, we spend a lot of time talking about some of Josh's perspective as a Chickasaw man and as a person who is uh, kind of dedicating his life to perpetuating his culture and uh, his way of seeing the world. Uh, really, really, really fascinating guy. And I mean, the conversation was fantastic. Uh, the driving around the reservation, him showing me that uh, incredibly generous with his time and his in his home, and uh, it's introducing me to people and you know just having some really awesome conversations. Also, that last morning I was there. I was able to go duck hunting with him and a buddy of his who was like a just a top shelf southern gentleman. And you know, it, it didn't end up being like the most action packed hunt, but it's it's probably one of my favorite hunts in the last few years. And it's primarily because, you know, we saw a few birds, 
we were able to make a uh, get a few mallards to pretty much do it the way we wanted to. And then, man, we you know we we had like a pleasant conversation. We ate some uh, smoked uh, salmon, like a good honey crisp apple, some good Irish cheddar, uh, a little hot coffee. Man, it was like I, I felt like a real gentleman. Man, it, it was fun. It was real, real fun. And oh, we got a snipe too, so like a variety of waterfowl, a uh, couple different kinds of ducks. And then I hightailed it back. I was really only there for like 24 hours or something, but I held, hightailed it back to Arkansas because uh, this is a busy time of year. Anyway, check this guy out. His name's Joshua Henson, also known as LaCoche. Please enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Black Duck Revival podcast. This week, I am in Ada, Oklahoma, on the, uh, what's the heart of the Chickasaw Reservation, and I am at the home of one Joshua Henson, uh, a.k.a. LaCoche. You got it. Did I say that per- correctly? Yeah. Uh, and, man, I came up here to... Man, to check this reservation out, and we're going to do some Oklahoma duck hunting tomorrow. But, uh, yeah, this is just like – this is a dude I came across on Instagram, and it was just kind of one of those, like, natural, like, hey, this guy's what he's doing is pretty interesting, man. And then we just started chatting uh, just a little bit ago. Uh, and, yeah, man, I just, this is like a 24-hour trip. I just want to run over here and say what's up. But, uh Dude, thanks a whole bunch for being so welcoming and letting me come check out where you live and be in your house and everything. Oh, man, it was, it was my pleasure. I mean, I've been following you and listening to the podcast for a while. and You messaged me on Instagram. I was like, oh, yeah, let's do this. Uh, so before we start this conversation, uh, we've, man, we've been talking like all day, right? But like the term that you're using is Indian. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. So that's going to be the term that I use mostly in this conversation. And the, the whole reason I'm bringing that up is because I'm going to use that term because that's the term that you use yeah. and you are comfortable with. And I just want to make the point that that might act, you know, uh, strangely enough, people are not a monolith <laughs> and there might be somebody who prefers to be called Native American sure. or indigenous or yeah. only referred to by uh, their tribal affiliation. Right. Or uh, they or there might be someone who uh, doesn't want to do any of that. And, you know, I'm just an American. And so whatever <laughs> the case is. uh I would just say that maybe ask the person you're dealing with what they prefer and right. then have enough respect right. to, to use that, right? right? Like my homie in uh, Oregon, Lydia, always uses the term indigenous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I, I took note from talking to you on the phone and then being here that you're saying Indian. So that's the term we're going to use. And uh, yeah, just like basic respect, folks. Like that. that's all I'm shooting for here. Uh, and you know, like I think people... You know, like a lot of pe- times people dealing with me, like they try, they defer to like the term African-American, right? Mm-hmm. Which doesn't bother me. I, I take it as a respectful term. I don't say African-American that much. I usually yeah. say black, but uh, yeah, I did just want to bring that point up because I've heard it on other podcasts. Like just because you talk to one dude and he told you what he was cool with doesn't mean that uh, all the other people, and especially when we're talking about Indians, you know, Native Americans right. or whatever, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of tribal affiliations yeah. that could be separated by 
thousands of miles. So like oh, yeah. vastly different experiences and perspectives on stuff. Well, I mean, even even within, you know, our tribe, like I'm I'm here with you, common interests, like we're talking about like my lived experience. I'm not talking for every Chickasaw. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm talking for me. You know, yeah, just me. So, like you said, you're absolutely right. Some people prefer Native American, American Indian, First American. But in the community, when you talk to uh, the traditional folks that I run with, they say Indian all the time. Mm-hmm. So, Indian, Chickasha, Chickasaw, all that stuff's fine. Yeah, For I me. mean, you know, I guess you know, you're. I guess you're right because I don't. When I'm talking to other Black people, we don't refer to ourselves as African Americans no. or people of color. No. I mean, maybe occasionally I've heard that, but yeah, yeah very rarely. Uh, I don't like Native American because it's been co-opted in some instances by people with a political agenda. American Indian's cool. We use First Nations or First Americans sort of corporately mm-hmm. in the tribe. Um, but, you know, in Indian country, it's Indian country, and people say Indian, and that's okay. Well, and so, and the reason that this is like kind of at the forefront of the conversation is not just because Josh is a member of the Chickasaw tribe. It's because, uh, I mean, like your job and the focus of your work, like you work for the tribal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically, what's super interesting to me is that uh, you're you're shoring up this linguistic database, right? So, like you're you're keeping Chickasaw as a language that is spoken and not just relegated to that, uh, to the used to be's. Right. 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 Uh, so, and like, look, there's a bunch of other cool stuff going on here. There's like decoy carving. There's, uh, like when we were at the cultural center today and you were like showing me, I mean, you're not just, not just to diminish anybody, but I mean, you're not just working in, in this linguistic space, right? You're also talking to, you're contributing, uh, to kind of like the outward facing uh, self-expressed information of Chickasaw people, like to the outside world, right? right. Like uh, there's the uh, visual artistry. That's a big mm-hmm. part of what you're doing too. Right. And you're incorporating uh, your heritage into that. So yeah. that's, that's why we're, t- I don't, I'm not just like, I didn't just like find an Indian and, and say like, <laughs> let's talk about this. <laughs> you, there's there much better Indians than me. If that's what you're going for. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, man. So, like, let's just start. Let's talk about, like, what your job is. What's, what's your nine to five and, uh, like, kind of how you came into, came into that. Sure. So, I'm the executive officer of the Division of Language Preservation for Chickasaw Nation. Um, we're under the Department of Culture and Humanities. Um, and my, I direct report to Lisa John, who's the Secretary of Culture and Humanities. It's equivalent to like a federal secretary position uh, to help people understand. Mm-hmm. Like we have a tribal governor that's popularly elected. He selects his cabinet, and I work for one of those cabinet secretaries. Uh, you know, that's probably actually worth explaining to folks. Yeah. Because uh, this is just stuff that I'm starting. I've been asking you all sorts of questions, you know. Yeah. Uh, like full disclosure, I've kind of realized in the last year or two that uh, – and it was it was really because I kind of got called out by a friend of mine, but that I almost I think just because of like where I've lived and where I spent most of my time, like I've I've been in places where there was not uh, a large or prominent community of uh, indigenous peoples, right? right? So 
I almost kind of, I think without realizing it, I, I, I was kind of relegating uh, Indians to like something that used to be. Right. Right. Uh, because like, especially in Arkansas, it very largely is. And th- there's reasons and we can talk about, like namely the Trail of Tears. And th- that was like a pathway that people went through to get to this reservation system in Oklahoma. Uh, but yeah, like this, uh, it's culturally, it's not everywhere still. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, the vast majority of Native Americans or sorry, American Indians were, uh, I mean, died, right? They were, like, wiped out through either war or probably largely through uh, germs. Disease was a big deal. I mean, in most cases, like, you know, we're Southeastern people. Mm-hmm. You look at the presence on the landscape, and we're represented by names, you know, because most of those folks are gone. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. Absolutely. Kentucky, Tennessee. Yeah. Yeah, all that. Yeah, but I mean, but Arkansas, yeah. Missouri. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, but yeah, when, I guess, and when you think about American Indians, you're thinking about like the reservation system in Oklahoma, right? Right. Then you've got southwestern, uh, southwestern reservation system, right? The plains. Uh, yeah. Then you get up to like in the Dakotas and right. and all that stuff. And then I mean, definitely still in the. Uh, like Montana, mm-hmm. uh, like Idaho, Washington. Yeah. But as far as like where I've spent most of my time in the middle of the country, yeah, it's right. uh, history books, it's mm-hmm. museums, it's uh, representation in movies. It's yeah. it's saying that like Mississippi is a is a uh, Indian word for right big river right. Uh, but so yeah, so so there is a. We're we're on we're in Oklahoma, we are on the Chickasaw Reservation. So, do you mind? Like, could you explain kind of like what that reservation system is? Because we've got Chickasaw uh, next to this is Choctaw mm-hmm. above us, or north of us would be Muscogee. Uh, then you got Cherokee as right. well. So, during the Indian Removal, the Indian Removal Act, which was signed by. Andrew Jackson and following the southeastern tribes were systematically removed to Indian territory, which inconveniently uh, meant we were put on the homelands of indigenous people that were already here. You know, so like our reservation was previously Caddo and Wichita and so forth. So in the specific case of the Chickasaw Nation, Uh, we purchased an interest in the Choctaw Nation's territory, in Indian territory. We were a Chickasaw district, um, which made us, you know, a minority, politically speaking, a minority. And from 1837, uh, when we began the removals, till 1854, 1855, it was that time, you know, the people said, this is not going to work for us, like... We need um, our own, like we need to separate legally uh, in many ways from Choctaw Nation. So the reservation that as it exists, exists now is a portion of the reservation that was assigned following uh, the signing of the removal treaties. In our case, it's like 1832. So it existed, um, you know, from 1855 until statehood in 1907 
um, the in, the intent of the Allotment Act uh, was to sort of destroy common ownership. You know, we didn't have individual property ownership until uh, after statehood, um, but it, it failed. Uh, you know, the the efforts of some to um, you know destroy tribal government, um, you know, push us towards sort of um, American property owning that sort of stuff, it didn't really work out, you know, because our governments never ceased to function. And so the reservation that we live on today was reaffirmed following the McGirt decision by the Supreme Court. I think it was in 2020. I'm not a legal scholar, but uh, somewhere around there. And it, it affirms for the purposes of criminal jurisdiction that our reservations, the entirety of eastern Oklahoma, with some exceptions, still exist so the reservation is a reservation, um, despite you know the intent uh, of Congress. They never acted in a decisive and sufficient manner to terminate our reservations. You know all the treaties say this will be your land, you know as long as the waters run and the grass grows, um, and in this case it proved to be true, at least in this very limited sort of sense. And so, I mean, does that mean that you are? You have like dual citizenship, right? So like your yeah. American citizenship and right. then Chickasaw citizenship. Yeah, so this is something that's really important and people don't understand. Um, being a, a citizen, well, let me give you an example. Just because I have Irish ancestry does not make me a citizen of Ireland. Mm -hmm. I have Chickasaw ancestry and I descend from... Chickasaw people who are on our base rolls. So I'm legally a Chickasaw citizen. So I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm a citizen of the state of Oklahoma. And I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation. All those three things can coexist at one time. Uh, I wonder if it's... Man, it, it's probably worth uh, looking at this a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So like you're talking about the base rolls, right? Yeah. So this is like a really like interesting slash contentious slash painful slash yeah. thing. Right. So when we're talking about like the base roles and, and again, I want to make, want to be clear here that there are going, we're talking about Chickasaw people right now, right? right. That would be your area of expertise. Right. There's bleed over into other experience, experiences of other tribes, That's but right. like this isn't, this isn't a uh, ubiquitous across, right. Uh, it's not Indian countrywide. Yeah. Every tribal government in the United States um, follows their own laws, their own constitutions, or their lack of constitution. Traditional governments, customary laws, the people, that political body decides who is and who is not based on any number of, of factors. Yeah. Right. And so you're talking, but you, you reference base roles. Like yes. I've heard other people talk about the idea of like blood quantum. Right. Right. Which would, which would kind of uh, be familiar to people if you're, if you're familiar with like the idea of like the one drop rule that right. was like instituted during slavery. Uh, but yeah, so kind of as best you can maybe explain that a little bit. Yeah. So every Chickasaw person alive today descends from, ultimately around 1,700 people who managed to survive the intertribal warfare of the 18th century and subsequent um, 
pandemics like uh, smallpox, for example. So we were always very small, small group of people. After removal, you know, we were forced between 1837 and, and as late as the 1850s, maybe even 1860s, there was a, a, this sort of movement to remove. It took us a long time. Um, so we were forced from our traditional homelands, assigned this reservation. Um, there were significant and politically and economically powerful interests in Washington and elsewhere that wanted to create the territory as a new state. And what they did was, uh, through the Curtis Act and then the Dawes Rolls, they established this base role. And so there's a citizen by blood role, and then there's a minor citizen by blood role. And those were between 1898 and 1907. They were closed in 1907. So after statehood, the citizenship of the Chickasaw Nation was only those original enrollees, um, those people that were enumerated on that roll. And they were the only tribal citizens until our new constitution, which was 1983, I think. So at that time, the Chickasaw people, those original enrollees, um, determined that for the purposes of ongoing tribal citizenship, if you could trace your descendancy from a person who's on one of those roles, you would then be legally considered a Chickasaw citizen. Um, and that's how we operate today. It's much more traditional. Uh, we don't follow blood quantum. Um, Chickasaw identity is about relationship. And if you, you know, if you have these ongoing um, relationships, not only to ancestors, that makes you a citizen, but relationships with other Chickasaw people makes you an active and sort of like dynamic member of our community, regardless of where you live. So we're all connected ultimately to about, I don't know, 5,000, 5,500 people that were living between 1898 and 1906, 1907. Is that, uh, I, I imagine I know the answer to it just because I know people, but is, uh, is it like is it like Harry Potter? Is it like the the pure bloods and the muggles and like there's some folks that are like, man, I can trace us trace my my ancestry straight direct line back to the original 1700 and is that like a flex or something? Oh, I guess for some people, you know, people express their Indian identity in different ways. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's living in community, speaking my language doing my best to be responsible to other people, you know, playing my part. But other people, they're like hardcore genealogy Indians. Like, they know all that stuff, and that's cool. You know, some people are uh, powwow folks, and that's how they express their identity. Um, so, yeah, I mean, some people are like, oh, I traced my ancestry back to 1690. And that's cool. That's cool. But, like, what are you going to do for our people tomorrow? That's what matters to me. I mean, so like, I can flex, you know, I descend like nine generations of Chickasaw women. I still have a clan. I still have a house. I speak my language fluently. I have, you know, a name. I'm a leader on the ceremonial grounds. But for all intents and purposes, I'm a big white dude out in the world. So I'm trying to be the best white Chickasaw I can be. Yeah. So, and that's something you refer to yourself as uh, in our conversations as a white Indian. And so, 
uh, I mean, what, basically what we're talking about is that uh, you're like a mixed race person, right? Mm-hmm. You're like me, right? Like you're yeah. a mixed race person. Yeah. Uh, and then as you referred to it, like you don't present as a phenotypical. That's right. No. So that just means like you don't have like brown skin. No, I look like an Irishman. I mean, kind of like you say that, but not. I don't really think so. I mean, I'm I come straight out of <laughs> I come out of people that look straight Irish, man. Uh, I I think yeah. that you would probably I would I would probably describe you as like ethnically ambiguous, and then you know if you told me what your ethnic background was, I'd be like, okay, right. yeah, I, right. I I I recognize that now, yeah. right? Uh, but. And then that was like something when we went to the cultural center today, mm-hmm. man, like most of the folks that we ran into that are Chickasaw. I mean, these like I'm I'm much darker than they are. Right. You know, I mean, and it runs the gamut um, because this is thing people people fail to realize that while there is uh, a component of race, there's a component of ancestry and descendancy, um, our status as uh, indigenous nations is wholly political all this shenanigans there's court cases right now basically saying that uh, the way that we interact our place like deriving from the constitution in this political sphere you know that is the united states and the indigenous nations that it's somehow like race-based but it's not because we have chickasaws that are black chickasaws white chickasaws we have people that don't have any blood quantum listed on their certificate. You were certificate telling me about degree. a dude today that's like, he's originally from Korea, but he was adopted by Chickasaw people. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? And yeah. But- he's uh, he's uh, married to a citizen of our nation. He's a uh, real great guy, incredible artist. Um, Has some of his work there right. at the cultural so, center. So culturally speaking, he grew up in a Chickasaw community. He lives in a Chickasaw community. He's married into a traditional family. Uh, he was uh, an adoptee from Korea. Well, who cares? He has a statue of the Cultural Center. Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I met a Chinese Chickasaw in Washington, D.C. I mean, we have people of all sorts of, of, you know, racial commutations or whatever that are legally citizens of our nation. And because it's political, that also excludes people that may have ancestry but their ancestors, for whatever reason, a variety of different reasons, are not on that base role, which means without a constitutional amendment, a change to the way that you know the Chickasaw people have decided to conduct our affairs, they are not able to be citizens. And so, like, and an example of that you gave me was like, uh, so the, man, I guess there's so much stuff to explain. So, Yo, it's uh, so we. You referenced this early in our conversation, but like the idea of the five civilized tribes, right? right? So right. in the shorthand, I'd always heard about the five civilized tribes is they were civilized because they owned black slaves, right? That's not, I'm just saying that's a shorthand that like yeah, I've yeah, heard yeah. before, right? Yeah. But there was, uh, I mean, so there were Indians that owned black slaves. That's correct. You know, uh, some people might not know that there were actually black people that owned black people in America. You know what I mean? That's so, true. uh, but so like you and, and then the Chickasaws sided with the Confederacy during the civil war. That's correct. And so then there's this, after the conclusion of the civil war, there's kind of this, uh, there's just like, well, what do we do with all these people right. that 
were within the Chickasaw purview, yeah. but now can no longer be owned as property. And like that, you were telling me like, that's kind of the precursor to like a black wall street. Like and people have been hearing about that a that's lot right. lately, but you know, these, uh, black communities in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, that, you know, economically and culturally and socially were like, uh, kind of powerhouses. Yes. And then in the, in the early part of the 20th century, when it, like when lynchings and stuff were really crazy and these race riots got just wild, like some of those places were just completely and utterly destroyed. Yeah, that's right. So many of the um, historical black communities in Oklahoma, um, and some even prior to statehood, um, were composed of uh, tribal freedmen of different, you know, Creek and Seminole and Cherokee and Chickasaw and Choctaw and so forth. And uh, many of them uh, made their way up to Tulsa. And so most of the, the people that were systematically targeted and firebombed by the white populace at that time um, were Chickasaw, Choctaw, Cherokee, Freedmen. Yeah, like Creek. maybe like one generation out of that. Even. Right. Or came. So, so, you know, you're, you're looking at people that were um, freed following the Emancipation Proclamation. That news came relatively late to the Indian Territory. Um, some of them formed, like I said, they're historically black towns, some of which are still in existence. And then things, you know, people move as people are wont to do. Different economic opportunities were available in like Oklahoma City, for example, or Tulsa that maybe weren't available in 1920 in Ada, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. especially for people of color. Yeah. Yeah, and the reason I'm kind of trying to just delve into this, one, it's interesting. Uh, it's it's also, I don't think it's common knowledge. Like, I, I, I consider myself a fairly informed American citizen, mm-hmm. and there's just, like, so much of this that uh, that isn't, common knowledge right and 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 then to even think that you know i'm what two and a half hours from the oklahoma border pretty much as soon as you cross into oklahoma from arkansas right you're hitting reservations right yeah Mm -hmm. and then but like i've i've got very limited understanding of how all this works how it all came to be you know like i'm familiar with the so like down the street from my house is there's like this little and it's it seems woefully inadequate, but there's this like trail of steer trail of tears, uh, park. Yeah. yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just like just down the road from my house. It's like connected right. to the university of, uh, university of Arkansas and little rock. Yeah. Uh, and like, you know, you, I think lots of people have heard of the, the trail of tears. Right. Uh, you know, I would think that most, maybe I'll, I'll speak to my experience. I think when I've, thought or heard about the trail of tears like i primarily thought of cherokees i didn't even think about uh choctaws or chickasaws or muskogee right uh and and then like i said then my friend lydia when she was like well you know why do you think that there's no like there's very little like kind of living legacy of indians in arkansas and she's like it's the trail of tears and i was like oh dude that makes total sense right i mean like basically you had a bunch of people from Mississippi, Georgia, Florida, Arkansas, got death marched across the state into Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess since we're talking about this, it'd be worth 
it's worth uh, bringing up that the folks that would have been in Arkansas would have been like the Quapaw, the Osage, the Caddo. Mm -hmm. uh, And then also there was like this, it was kind of like this intermingling point too, right? Because as I understand, I mean, you had people kind of moving. The Mississippi was kind of, it's a line, but like our lines ever really hard between people, Right. right? Right. So it's not like, it's not like no Chickasaw people ever crossed across the Mississippi. Right? Oh, no, no. I mean, we, we have um, documentation like Chickasaws were regularly going into Arkansas to like trade for boat arc. You know, there were tribes that were known to supply like excellent wood for mm-hmm. bows and stuff like that. And, and frankly, a lot of traditional enemies, you know, along the Mississippi River, including the Osage, you know, we, we used to fight with them on the regular, all the way down to little tribes near like uh, New Orleans and stuff. And then way up, like Great Lakes folks, like the Miamias and so forth. Really, that far up, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, we, t- we looked at that map, that 1723 yeah. hide map. It it literally encompasses, you know, Texas, all, you know, all the way up to the Great Lakes, all the way over to the East Coast, and then down into Florida. That was the the world that our ancestors. Yeah, knew. I guess you're right. Yeah, man, it, yeah. W- it, it was about half of the, yeah. the U.S. Yeah, uh, and that's a cool man. That map was cool. So you showed it to me first, uh, like a modern analog of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it was like carved into glass. Right. So this uh, this Chickasaw Cultural Center is like this is a very very modern. You know, it's just like it, like kind of like if you went to an art museum or a history museum or something like anywhere, it's mm-hmm. it's like a big modern fancy place, uh, really well put together, uh, kind of. Man, it was it was actually really interesting, specifically in the fact that you aren't displaying what what's different, and this is kind of an, an awkward segue, but mm. uh, what I've been struck by, like talking to you. Uh, some conversations I've heard on other podcasts with uh, Indian folks is, it, and I think it might be something that's hard for, you know, just kind of Western thinking people is like mm-hmm. there, there's a very different consideration of not just like what's important, what's sacred, mm-hmm. but the interaction that you have with, uh, the world around you kind of like these different layers in the world. And that's all to say that like you you guys aren't displaying actual artifacts from like dig sites in there. Like you, like, so like you were talking about, you, you have, uh, you have reproductions of, uh, of some of the pottery and Mm -hmm. some of the like projectile points Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But you don't, and, now you have some of these things in protected places, but you don't stuff something that came from like a burial site. You would not, right. It would be like a desecration right. to, to display that. So there was, there's a lot of art. There was a lot of archeological activity in the 60s, 70s and 80s when Tupelo, Mississippi, which is the core of our homeland um, was being developed. And on any given home site, you know, people have to do something to get rid of their trash. So there's these pits called Oka Kinafa. It means it falls in in that place. And so they would do these burrow pits to get clay to, you know, our ancestors would daub 
the walls of their homes with this clay. And they would dump all of their trash into these pits. So if we have, um, you know, like proven diagnostically, this is a trash pit and we find a piece of broken pottery or an arrowhead or whatever, we're perfectly okay with displaying that, you know, because it's, you know, it's sort of evidence of our ancestors, you know, it's like relatives in a way. But anything known associated with a grave good or even types of things that perhaps weren't associated with a grave, but they tend to be, we always err, you know, on the side of caution because, you know, ancestrally, when an ancestor was put in the ground, like that's where they were intended to be. You know, they, they were buried with all of the things uh, that mattered to them in this life to go to the next life. So when you disrupt a grave of a Chickasaw person for traditional people, the idea is that you've disrupted sort of that eternal rest of that ancestor. And furthermore, when grave robbers come in and, and eat, let's say they leave the bones of an ancestor, but they take the assorted items that were interred with that person, that person's physical and spiritual essence is, is in a way imbued within those objects. So we treat a grave good just like we would treat, uh, you know, a piece of mandible or a finger bone because they're all our ancestors. You would not, you wouldn't put your dead granny on display. We don't do it either. You know, and that's worth, that's worth bringing up too, because that's something that, That's something that uh, has been normalized in Western archaeology or yeah. uh, study of history, and and beyond just the grave goods, right? Mm -hmm. Like the action, the, the idea that you would take a, a piece of a skeleton, right, or an entire skeleton, or right. like when I grew up in St. Louis, I, there's a sarcophagus at the art museum. And I remember like you'd always go down there and you'd press a button and it would like show you an X-ray of it. Mm -hmm. Cause it like the, the, the body was still in there. Right. Right. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a strange relationship because I think in kind of a Western academia mm -hmm. after a certain amount of either after a certain amount of time has passed or enough othering, of whoever that person was, right. that's kind of fair game. Uh, yeah. But like the way you're describing stuff and, or even the way that you're referring to like uh, grannies or aunts or mm -hmm. any of that stuff, it's not this, it's not this linear Western uh, way of thinking. Like you, you're talking about grannies. You said like my granny did this, but you're like, that could be my grandma, my great grandma, my great, 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 great grandma. Yeah. You're like, you know, we don't do this second third cousin once removed right. all that kind of stuff yeah, yeah. uh yeah. it's and at hmm, you know what it really was doing for me is i feel like we've all heard this stuff right and it's uh I'll look i'll just speak for myself i think that it's i think i've always not meaning to but i've thought of it as like uh well, isn't that a, a trite way for someone to look at the world? Mm. You know what I mean? Isn't that a, 
less informed way to look at the world. And, and you know, that's like me thinking I'm like a, a, a pretty forward thinking person, right? But yeah. listening to you talk about this, and, and that's what is is so fascinating about realizing that I was relegating Indian people to this kind of place in the past without realizing it, Yeah, is like your considerations of that in modernity, uh, they, it kind of takes the triteness out of my consideration of it. And I was like, oh, yeah. this isn't just like a, 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 a simple, simpler people in a simpler time thinking something because they, uh, they didn't have modern day science. It's a completely different way of interpreting the world. Yeah, exactly. And this is not, your, ex, your experience is not different, I would say, from the majority of American people who believe that Indian folks are either something in the past, you know, some great lost culture or something, or alternatively, we're all reservation-bound, living in potter, poverty, alcoholics, mm -hmm. uneducated stuff like that. And of course, both of those extremes, it's brown folks. They don't think of a black Indian. They don't think of a white Indian. Yeah. Unless you're with those folks. And so, you know, um, ignorance is not a sin. Uh, it's just a thing, you know, and we just have to be open to learning. Yeah, man, but good Lord, man, think about how screwed up is it that and I can't remember, I was told not that long ago, but I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds of different uh, tribal affiliations across what is now the United States, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how crazy, like I'm 39 years old and I've, I've basically lived the majority of my life without substantive contact. Yeah. Well, but think of where you come up. Yeah. You come up in St. Louis, you know, there are tribal lands in Missouri. Yeah. But not near you. Right. Um, and uh, they're, I think and they're, they're pretty small. Right? right. And I think there may be, we don't have any, so I'm not I'm trying to talk out of school, but there may be some tribal lands in Arkansas, but I'm not aware just off the top of my head. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like the, the, our, our presence is, is just this conspicuous absence names that that people don't even know what they mean anymore um you know like i said like our, our ancestors are still there you know but they're at rest underneath the parking lot of a dollar general and our names are on the landscape but we're not there unless we go back and that's one of the primary reasons why i think that we st we have this this long-term ongoing relationship with the homelands and the people that live in the homelands, because even though, uh, you know, we don't, we're not in that place anymore. Our ancestors are there and it's our obligation to take care of them. And that's why we have so much activity going on in the traditional homelands, which is, you know, Kentucky, parts of Tennessee, North, uh, Eastern Mississippi and Northwestern Alabama. We have um, folks that work for us full-time located in that old country that are looking after our historic sites and the bodies of our ancestors. Because that's what you do for relatives. You know what I mean? Like it's the, like this sort of linear, this linear Western thing that like 
Granddad lived. He's dead. I'm now here. I'm going to have some kids. And we're just marching on towards whatever, inexorable greatness. You know, it, it don't work that way. It's a big old circle. I'm just as much a part of my great, 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 great granny as my descendants will be in 10 generations. They're all here with us all the time, all the time. And when we live together and treat each other right and follow, you know, the, the customary sort of laws, the things that we were taught to do, the traditions and speak our language, everyone, they live, they live again. They're with us all the time. And that's a real challenging thing for the Western mindset. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a yeah. drastically different yeah. uh, consideration. Yeah. Uh, and I say this as someone who was raised off-reservation, knew I was a Chickasaw, super proud as a kid, but, but our cultural identity and our language had been stripped by boarding schools, um, you know, forced English education for American Indian folks. So this is just stuff I've learned over the last 20-something years hanging out with with old folks learning to talk man that's good that's a good segue let's go back let's talk about the language work yeah Uh, yeah. because i mean like man what's one of the most central things to a people right right Right. is their language right uh dialect right? right uh and and to think that there's all these languages. I mean, would it be fair to say that most of the languages spoken by indigenous people in this country are gone? Well, it's it's fair to say that most of the original inhabitants and their descendants, well, most of their descendants don't exist because yeah. they were dead. So there's 500 some odd tribes now. Um, there are a large number of tribes that have no living language. There's some tribes that don't even have a record of their languages anymore. Um, But, you know, for us, you know, old folks taught us that, like, you know, the the creator, Ababanili, means the one that sits above. Like, creator made us as unique and distinct people, and the creator gave us these specific languages in order to communicate with one another and with our ancestors and with, you know, the deities that lived in the sky. That was the whole idea. And the spirits here on the ground. So when you think about what, like, what is the thing that makes us separate and wholly different, apart, and unique from other people that are related to us? What makes a Chickasaw a Chickasaw and not a Choctaw? What makes a Choctaw a Choctaw and not a Creek? And that's the the languages. Uh, Now they say Muscogee. Um, You'll have to forgive me. So Muscogee, Muscogee, that's how they say their, their language. But... Um, it's language. Language is what separates us. Like Chickasaw and Choctaw are real close, but they're not the same. You know, I open my mouth and try to talk Choctaw to a Choctaw person. They're like, man, you sound like a Chickasaw. Well, yeah, it's because I am. You know, like I can read and understand Choctaw, but when I try to speak it, it just comes out silly. Um, so that's, that's what makes us you know, truly Chickasaw. And the thing that's so beautiful about the language is that everything that you need or would want to know is contained in it. So like if you want to be connected, like you want to be with the traditional community, you want to learn what it means to be Chickasaw through their eyes, you want to participate in Indian church, you want to go stomp ground um, and visit other people, the language, everything comes with the language. 
how you're supposed to live, how you treat people, what do we believe in, what are the foods, what are the ways, everything is in that language. So if people take on that obligation of the language, they become better, more full, happy, healthy, productive Chickasaws. Because that language is, I mean, it's medicine, it's not a joke. It's powerful. It changed your life. It changed my life. I never thought as a little boy I, I would get to hang out with 87-year-olds and talk Chickasaw all day. It's right. bonkers. So so you said there's like 30, 35 or so? Yeah. We have 75, 77, some odd thousand citizens. Uh, we have a couple of hundred people that linguists would call passive bilinguals, meaning they can understand, they can contribute in some ways because they were pro- in, in most cases fluent as children before mm-hmm. they went to school. But in terms of like first language speakers born into the world in a Chickasaw household that talk Chickasaw, there's less than 35 left right now. The and- oldest are in their 90s and the youngest are pushing 65 70 are there are there any kids born today that are that their first language is chickasaw there's one little girl her name's hatasbushik which means butterfly she lives here in ada and her mom and her dad are raising her they're homeschooling her she's four and uh, all she talks is chickasaw really she doesn't speak english at all uh-uh. really yeah i mean she's fluent like any four-year-old little girl would be fluent. Mm-hmm. She came, her mama and her came visit me in my office, and I gave her this little teeny wooden duck. I hadn't made it. I just had an extra one. I was like, oh, she'll love this. She's a little kid. So she's playing with a duck, and I'm talking to her in Chickasaw and this and that. And she's, you know, she's a kid. She's like, man, this guy's boring. I'm out of here. So she says to me in Chickasaw, the duck wants to go. Bye. And she walks out my office carrying the duck. It was pretty cool. You want some motivation, you talk Chickasaw to a four-year-old kid, yeah, and you're yeah. like, yes, that, that's, that's what we want. That's so, what we want. Like, so, like, man, tell me, tell the folks that are listening, explain yeah. exactly, like, what your work is. Because you're saying, like, you sit around and talk to old people and listen to Chickasaw all day. Yeah. But, so, I mean, you told me you were, like, born in Memphis. Right. You were living in Texas. Yep. Uh, you you are fluent in Chickasaw, which puts you in the minority of people yeah. on the planet. Yeah. But you learned that as an adult. That's correct. Uh, and then your work is trying. Your work is geared towards uh, other Chickasaw people learning right. the language and having it be a part of right. their lives. So when uh, when the language left our homes as a natural you know, medium of exchange. It's like everyday communication. You know, it, it didn't, it only took one generation. You know, all it takes is one kid who's pulled out and forced to go to English-only boarding school, and they lose that language. <clears throat> In many cases, you know, our grandparents, great-grandparents, or, or parents, they made a conscious choice because they had suffered so greatly because of their language, the racial prejudice and so forth. They also realized that you know, the language of economic power was English. And they would tell their kids and grandkids, this is a white man's world. If you want to be successful, you need to speak English. And so it became a language of the elders. It was a secret language. It was a way that they could talk where the kids wouldn't know what they were saying. So it's, you know, survival. 
you know, in some instances. It was also an act of love. You know, you love your, your child so much. You don't want them to go through what you went through. So you don't pass it along. So really what we're doing is we simply picked up the work that um, native speakers began in the mid-20th century. Really, with the beginning, there's this sort of alignment of our cultural uh, revival, in a, I guess, in a way, and our political renaissance. It's the same people. Traditional Chickasaw churches, speakers, wanting to be self-determined. We want to elect our own governor. They're noticing 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Man, these young folks don't talk Chickasaw. Like, what's going on? So Mr. and Mrs. Humes create the first dictionary in 1971. First Chickasaw Dictionary. Then you get people that are doing community language classes, also native speakers like Geraldine Greenwood or Yvonne Alberson. They're doing that teaching. Then in the 90s, we established cultural resources. Native speakers are doing that work again. So we just sort of picked up in 2007. And what we're trying to do is continue their language work and, and connect these missing generations. So the big picture is... We want to create newly fluent young people who will then have children and talk that language to their kids in the home and so that we can reintroduce it as a natural, you know, household language. Whereas, you know, that, that's, that's very natural as opposed to the revitalization stuff that we do, which is super unnatural. Like, you, you shouldn't have to prop up like the most precious aspect of your culture. You know what I mean? It should be in everyone's hearts and on everyone's lips, but that's just not how it is. So what we do today, we have sort of two aspects to the program. We have, uh, we have the, the whole thing is the revitalization program, language preservation, and then Chickasaw language revitalization program underneath that. We, we aim to create a new generation of fluent speakers to do what we've been talking about. We also aim to make sure that every Chickasaw, regardless of where they live in the world, has access to like high-quality language learning materials. And we then encourage citizens to pick that up in whatever way feels meaningful for them. I'm not sitting over here saying, like, oh, you got to be a fluent speaker or you're not a real Chickasaw. No, I don't think so. If you want to say hello, I mean, you're talking about like you. the coloring books you like got for my kid, like a coloring book or yeah. like the flashcards. Yeah, like it can be that level yep. of familiarity all the yep. way up to one. Maybe you know, hopefully one day having like a PhD. Uh, yeah. Or you were talking about having like a the goal being like a K through twelve school right. that is in Chickasaw. That's right. And so then, like English, would be a, a subject. That's correct. That a kid takes. In school, but they they're they're learning English from right from the perspective of a Chickasaw yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's commonly done that way. Like the Maori do that, the Hawaiians do that. They don't introduce English as subject until much later, like junior high. Um, but I mean, that's the goal. Like you you to do language revitalization work, you have to fundamentally be a positivist. Like you have to believe that this is possible. You have to believe that we can put in the effort to bring this language back, you know, into the natural home environment that it was supposed to be in. Um, 
But we also don't want to leave out folks that just want to learn how to say hello or, or want to play like, you know, Uno in Chickasaw. Yeah. That, you know, this is not, there's no heavy pressure here. This is everyone's birthright, their cultural heritage, a gift from the creator. And we want, we just want to make it as open as possible so that whatever that means to you, you're going to have something. You want to pray in a language, you want to introduce yourself. You want to name your kid. Uh, you want to be a full-on fluent speaker and talk all day with no English. You can do that, um, you know, with our help. So how many folks do you have now that you would consider fluent or fairly fluent in Chickasaw? Well, we have, um, we have seven, seven, eight people in the Chikasha Academy Adult Immersion Program. And then we have, excuse me, we also have previous graduates from a Master Apprentice Program or similar. So I would say, you know, over, I don't know, maybe 20, 25, 30 people that have um, the ability to hold a basic conversation. And it, and it may be bigger than that. But um, in terms of like people that can hang with an elder that aren't first language speakers, you know, there's like two or three of us. I mean, and you're probably, if you're talking about these, these, these folks that were native speakers, right? I mean, what, 10 years, most of them are probably going to be gone or a big chunk of them will be gone. Yeah. You're dealing with 80 year old people. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some of our folks are really long lived, you know, they live to be a hundred. 110 you never know um that's that's my daily prayer to the creator please let these folks live to be much much older but yeah 10 to 20 years it's i mean that's that's a sad but sort of realistic possibility i mean but i guess you get i mean if in 20 years that was to happen you'd have a 24 year old native speaker right at least one that's the this idea. little girl who's grown up in it yeah that's the idea uh so as a part of that revitalization effort, it's not just public education. It's not just like cool language giveaways. Uh, it's not just the immersion program, but we're, we're documenting heavily this last generation of people that grew up with it as a first language. So, you know, we have a dedicated team of linguists on staff, and that's literally all they do is bring speakers in two, three, four times a week. They have conversations with one another. They tell traditional narratives. Um, they translate new terms into the language. Um, we just have archive on archive on archive, thousands of hours of these first language speakers doing what they do best, which is talk Chickasaw. Um, and, is, and, and that's available to Chickasaw people that want to immerse themselves in it? Yeah, so you imagine this huge archive. There's obviously an issue of accessibility you know, they need to be edited, transcribed, and then put into uh, learning products. So an example would be a traditional narrative that uh, Pauline Brown told on three occasions about a woman who ate some eggs and transformed into a serpent. You know, the moral is don't eat stuff that you don't know what's up because you'll turn, you, you know, maybe you could turn into a snake or whatever. So we have that audio we chose the best audio. We turned that into a, a learner-focused narrative, so we sort of simplified her grammar. 
And then we animated that video, and it's going to be a part of uh, our Rosetta Stone product. We have four, we're having, uh, this year it'll be the fourth level, 160 video-based lessons in partnership with Rosetta Stone. Oh, like actually with Rosetta Stone? Literally, yeah. Free to any tribal citizen and anyone in their household, regardless of their enrollment status worldwide. Right now we have something like 9,000 users of Rosetta Stone Chickasaw. We're the first Native nation that did this custom video-based approach. Not the first to have a Rosetta Stone product, but the first that said, no, 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 we need, we need like full-on like actor videos. So we created 160, you know, moments of like, it's like Chickasaw television. This little family living in this world where they all talk Chickasaw to one another. And you learn through their life experiences and stuff like that. Uh, it's pretty cool. 8,000 people. It's a big deal. Our target goal was 10% of the tribal population, and we exceeded that, you know, a couple of years ago. I mean, it's you know, cool. I mean, you're, you're working with the times, too. Yeah. Like, if you had all this information and it was just in, like, a, a textbook, it f- folks wouldn't consume it. Right. You know? So we're doing, we're doing things like... Um, like in the next year, we'll stand up an electronic database that has, you know, audio, video, text. Um, any tribal citizen will ha- will can get an account and access all that stuff. You want to download a recording of your granny? You make the request, we send it to you. Stuff like that. Um, this is again in service to this this access initiative. We want to we we have to make sure it's our obligation to make sure. That all of this stuff is available for Chickasaw people worldwide, regardless again of where they live. Um, so that's one. There's just so many people. I mean, language revitalization is probably unknown, just wholly unknown to most people, you know, in America. They don't even think about that kind of stuff. Um, it's big and broad and complicated, and it's wonderful work. It's also incredibly sad, you know. You make friends with these folks all your best friends are like in their 80s and they they die on you but it's um it's good work it's good work and you know they, they gave 20 some odd years of their lives to me i'm gonna continue to do this work until i'm the age that they are and i'll kick off and watch from above yeah that's, that's super fascinating man it's uh it's more than a job it's got to be calling. It's, it's got to be empowering. It's a mission on a level. Yeah, man. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you're, and it's not just pr- preservation either, right? Like the word you're using is revitalization. Oh yeah, no, we're no. Our language is not um, a scientific specimen, nor is it a pickle. You know, like there's a there's a preservation aspect to it. Like we're caretaking this beautiful thing, but we're not hoarding it we want it to grow and blossom and and go nuts and just expand in every way that it can because language can really like i said earlier transform people's lives um yeah it has significant significant effects on people's emotional health general well-being all across Indian country, kids that are connected to their traditional culture, language, history, 
and so forth are much less likely uh, to attempt suicide. Um, it's a real thing, you know, it's a real thing. And, and suicide is, is epidemic in Indian country, you know, because people feel, especially youth feel disconnected. They don't know where their place is. You know, they, they've been divorced from their culture or their family or whatever the case may be. And language is one of those things that is truly powerful and healing. And so, it, you know, it's, uh, it's really shot through almost any aspect of tribal life you can think about. From the bathroom signs, you know, all the way up to Rosetta Stone, all of the prayers that are offered at public events. Um, you know, our governor, uh, Bill Anoatubi, is, uh, is a tireless advocate for the language. He always... Uh, supports us and gives us what we need when we ask for it. And it, that is not the case in, in other Native nations. Um, we use, we're using our economic power to uh, bring people back to who they can be as Chickasaws in this case. What, uh, you know, I, I would argue that so like language, obviously, and yeah. vitally, culturally important touchstone. Yeah. I would say, for me, food serves that purpose as well. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. So when we were at the cultural center today, right, you had like some, you walk in there, you got some folks set up, right? They had some crock pots going. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, they were like, and seemed pleased to do it too, like to dish it out, right? Yeah. Uh you mind describing like what we ate and uh, yeah yeah so um, our national dish is called pishofa it's a shortened form of tanche pishofa which means scraped corn so when the corn is dry you scrape it from the cob um, traditionally it would be cracked in these big sort of um, what like mortise and pestle kind of mortar things. and pestle yeah yeah that's it yeah um, I know what it's called in Chickasaw but I can't say it in English anyway so. Crack this corn up, you treat it, slip the skins, boil it with some protein. It used to be deer or bear or whatever, and now it's pork. So we had some pishofa. Um, it's kind of like hominy with pork in it for yeah, yeah, that's for what your listeners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we had um, punky asfula or pankasfula. It means uh, grape dumplings, traditionally made with wild grapes and. Dumplings made from uh, corn flour. Now we make it with, you know, white and rich flour, whatever that we got. And then you boil down Welch's grape juice. Uh, it's sort of like, uh, I don't know, like if the top of your uh, cobbler fell in to the sweet juice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just yeah. Floating That's a around. good description. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. There are still people that collect, you know, these wild grapes. They're called punky and misat. And it has a different really different kind of vibe. It's not as sort of cloyingly sweet as those Concord grapes are. It's, uh, it's really good. Really good. Yeah. I was actually thinking about that, man. That would be a, that'd be a dish I'd want to, I'd want to try yeah. in a more traditional way. I mean, cause like you're talking about, you're talking about muscadines basically, right? I mean, yeah. that's what we call them where I live. Yeah. Up, I think like up North, they call them like shupper, supper nogs or something. Mm -hmm. You heard that? We call in English they're like possum grapes. Yeah, is is what they call them in English. But yeah, okay. punky is our word for it. Punky. Yeah, man. I I would uh, and I think too if those dumplings were made out of corn. Yeah. Uh, texturally, they'd be a little 
mm-hmm. a little more robust. And then I think the, yeah. the grape juice would have some more layers to it, right? Yeah. Because that's like, that was like grape juice concentrate, man. Like, oh, yeah. It's literally boiled down Welch's grape juice with some uh, cornstarch in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that's, that'd be an interesting. Uh, yeah. That'd be, that'd be something interesting to, to try, man. Uh, yeah, it's one thing, you know, people don't think of, of Southern cuisine it's really oftentimes deriving from Indian cuisine. No, you're absolutely, dude, you're that, absolutely right. Yeah. That's literally, you know, that's, that's what it is. I mean, think about it. Even uh, like soul food. Man, you, you put that stuff on any Chickasaw table and it's going to get eaten. Many, because it, it comes yeah, yeah. so often from the same sort of Well, origins, you know what, right? actually, if you think, so, I mean, as far as reference to that, yeah, that's like one of the things... That interaction between European yep. food styles and preferences yep. and black cooks, yep. right? Like enslaved black cooks, yep. and then indigenous ingredients. Yeah. Uh, barbecue. Bar- I mean, so barbecue. Yeah, bar- American Indian innovation mastered by black by slaves, yeah, yeah. chefs, right? Uh, Whole hog barbecue. Yep, totally. North Carolina. I mean, that's like. That's full on Indian into black folks. Shit, I mean gumbo. If you think about, uh, yeah, you okay. know, I, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast, but if you ever come to like Black Duck Revival or listen to me talk about like food and stuff, I, like yeah. a lot of times I do these like gumbo yep. kind of lectures, right? Yeah, and so you talk about the you talk about the difference between what I think what most people think of as gumbo is like a Cajun gumbo, right? Which is like mm-hmm. this chicken andouille sausage gumbo, right? Right. Which is good. I mean, I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. That's good. But, uh, you know, you really kind of have like, in Louisiana anyway, because yeah. there's different kind of gumbo like in the low country. But you got like Cajun gumbo and you got Creole gumbo, right? Mm-hmm. Cajun gumbo, you're dealing with, they're making roux out of, uh, traditionally they're making roux out of rendered bear fat right yeah which would absolutely be uh an indigenous ingredient totally right uh you get into creole gumbos which are you know would be similar but then they would oftentimes have the inclusion of tomato Mm -hmm. and okra which are going to be old world ingredients right yeah but then thickened instead of being thickened with that roux they're going to be thickened oftentimes with filet powder Mm-hmm. which is an indigenous ingredient. That's the yep. dried powdered leaves of a sassafras tree. Yep. Right. And we were like at the cultural center today, yeah. man, you were showing me like different medicines. Yeah. Uh, and medicine meaning herbal plant medicine. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, and, and, and check this out. Our word for okra is combo, which is a borrowing of, I think it's a Yoruba word. Sure. Sure. That makes sense. Uh, which is basically the same word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For okra, I mean gumbo. Yeah, gumbo, gumbo, combo can be traced back to, to uh, yeah. As I understand it, can be that word, that idea can be traced back to like West Africa. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. No, dude, you're, you're you're totally right on that. I want you know. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. I'm trying to think about. Uh, other indigenous ingredients. I mean, well, I mean, like I'm sure, like sarsaparilla or yeah, so stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of reaching like to connect with the audience. Like you know, uh, maybe they think of it as American food, but it's actually Indian food. They just never thought about it, right? So like, 
um, sassafras tea. Mm-hmm. That's a traditional medicine. It's used to treat high blood pressure and some other things. Echinacea. Yeah. Um, coneflower, yeah. echinacea, cool. super significant medicine plant. Rattlesnake master, which is a related medicine. Uh, hatuk, um, which is uh, red root. It's a kind of a prairie willow. And then beyond that, you know, f- just food, like all the different varieties of corn, beans, squash, uh, wild plants like poke salad, mm-hmm. lamb's quarters, wild onions, um, you know, all the animals like bear, deer, waterfowl, alligator, um, you know, raccoons. I don't know many people that eat raccoons, but I know, raccoons. In, the old, in the old days, if I killed a raccoon, I would eat it, but I never killed a raccoon. Um, Very, man, all uh, that stuff. It's just you know, side it's note, Indian man. food. It's Southern food. It's Black food. It's all that. Food. Yeah, 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 it's yeah. American yeah. food. Raccoons kind of. Raccoons have a bear-ish yeah quality yeah. to them. Yeah. I, I would I would argue that the black bears I've eaten, I, I would I'd say every black bear I've eaten is, tastes better than every raccoon I've eaten. Yeah, uh, yeah. My uh, uh, some of my close friends and in fact my boss are members of the uh, raccoon clan so they would not imbibe but uh i could if i wanted to you're not supposed to kill your clan animal nor eat it yeah you're in your panther clan. that's right yeah panther clan uh and then our house group is imatapo which means like they're lean to people like a temporary shelter built by hunters out in the woods mm-hmm. today it also means tent but originally it meant a lean to so tent people or lean to people that's our house group uh are there any are there any other foods that you uh i, I don't mean like food stuffs i mean like actual yeah. dishes that are like super meaningful to oh, a chickasaw person yeah yeah so um there we talked about pishofa there's a dish called banaha which is basically like a tamale without meat Sometimes uh, people will add like black-eyed peas to it or other kinds of beans, mm-hmm. and you eat it with rendered fat of some sort, generally pork fat. You just pour it over this, you know, hunk of boiled cornmeal. Uh, so it's like a fatty little delicious cornmeal cake. I mean, it's made just like a tamale. Like you take, you know, the the corn husks, wrap it up, tie it, boil it, and then eat it with fat. That's called banaha. That's Chickasaw and Choctaw. We also make this thing called tomfala. Um, in English, they call it Tom Fuller. And that's uh, a fermented, it's it's like fermented pishofa corn. Uh, with nuts, it's called osak tomfala. By itself, it's just called tomfala, but it's cooked with lye that we make from blackjack oak. And then you just let it sort of do its thing for three days, four days, five days, whatever you know, you're into. Seminoles and Creeks call it safki. It's just really funky, slightly rotten corn. And it's really good. I mean, if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, there's a, I mean, there's a bunch of old recipes like, you know, uh, persimmon, like dried persimmons. We call those onkof. It's almost like a fruit leather thing that you can mm-hmm. make. Really, dried man? Beef. You know, I talked about making persimmon fruit leather on my last podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I like, I'll eat them off the tree, but, man, I am not about to de-seed them and try to make fruit leather. You know how many persimmons it would take to, <laughs> to make anything sizable? It'd be a bunch. It would be. So, like, 
we're talking about like persimmons that are native to North America. They're yeah, small. They're like yeah, golf yeah. ball size. They're not like those Fujis that you get. Like they're like baseball size or softball yeah, size. Not Asian. Japan. Yeah, not Asian. Persimmons. You know what you do, man? Though is you just run it through a. Uh, you just run them through a pulper. It's, oh. You know, so it's like this. That makes sense. Kind of looks like a meat grinder thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it would just all the skins and the seeds and stuff it would filter out, and then you would just get this pulp that you would like scrape off. That makes sense. Yeah, because um, yeah, I mean a dang a wild persimmon's like fifty percent seed. Yeah, but man, it's good. It's so good to me. It tastes like a Werther's original. Really? I don't know why. There's just something about they it. kind of have a buttery, kind of orangey. I mean, I feel yeah. like they have kind of a citrus adjacent taste to them. Yeah, they're they're interesting though, man, because they're they're foul until they're like oh until they're soft and squishy you know yeah. they're like super tannic yeah. yep and uh our word is uh tugba tugba it means um like it's when you like if you eat one your mouth just like puckers up yeah it gives it's you that just, bitter beer face yeah, yeah. it's ter- it's truly terrible but when they're at when they're at their best it's almost as if they're rotten they're yeah. soft yeah yeah even sometimes they're not even on the tree you just pick them up off the ground um, w- there's a bunch uh, out at this spot we're going to hunt tomorrow, so we'll be eating persimmons when we're duck hunting. It's a challenge. It actually is kind of a challenging fruit for me because like, yeah. I'm not really crazy about them until they've been processed. Just like, the seediness of it sort of annoying. Uh, or maybe you don't like the skin. And the skin can be kind of different. I, You know, I think I just... If you like pulp them up mm-hmm. and then you make a chutney or yeah. you make a glaze or you like bake them yeah. into a... a you know, like a spice cake, like banana bread style or something. Sure. It just, uh, for me, man, it's just like a more palatable thing. Uh, yeah, I got you. They're, uh, yeah, I love them. I'm trying to think about what pawpaws. else. Pawpaws. You have uh, a tradition so, of that? So, papa, uh is a traditional Chickasaw uh, food. Mm-hmm. Um, its name is wapachali, uh, which means when it is ripe, um, it's sort of like, it busts open. It bursts open. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, that's a traditional, I mean, all across the Southeast, like that's a big, sure. you know, it's a big deal for Indian folks. Um, all of our languages have a word for it. Um, we have, uh, there's this really great recipe book from 1963 or something. This lady named Adeline Brown made it. And like, she has a recipe for like singed squirrel. Like, you know, you fry a young squirrel and you burn the hair off like a hog, an old squirrel, and turn it into like squirrel dumplings or something like that. She has a recipe for, um, it's called parched turtle. The recipe calls for one turtle and salt. You throw the turtle into the fire until it dies and is done. You crack it open and eat it with salt. It's uh, That's intense, dog. It's, you ain't kidding. It's something else. Yeah, it's a it's really really cool. Uh, any of the listeners that are interested can email me at my work email, joshua.hinson at chickasaw.net. Now, I'll send you a link to the recipe book. Adeline Brown, she was OG, first language speaker, super cool lady, really really good speaker. Yeah, dude, that send squirrel recipe sounds rough, man. Oh no, man, that, it's, I, I'm telling you, it's it's pork like that skin. That but that it that is. that burnt hair uh, uh, odiferousness doesn't impregnate the skin. I think maybe it does, but I like it. 
me and one of my language teachers, the late Jerry Imatachi, we're both like passionately committed to eating squirrels. And his favorite way and my favorite way, singe them, quarter them, turn them into squirrel dumplings. Fried is fine, but that's like entry level stuff. Are you are you uh, are you frying it? Skin like remove the skin and then fry it. Young squirrel, we skin them and then just fry the meat. Mm-hmm. Uh, not messing with the skin. Old. You're not talking about breading. You're just talking about like frying the meat and fat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can bread it if you want. Sure. To. Okay. I use cornmeal and a little bit of flour. It's not, nothing serious and salt. It's pretty boring, but. Man, I love it. Or, or even uh, squirrel brains. You know, if you get a mess of squirrels and you, you skin the heads and then bake them in the oven, crack open the cavity, eat it on toast or whatever, it's really good. And raw squirrel brains is really good for babies when they're teething. You just rub it on their gums and all their pain will go away. It's the thing. Dude, this is intense, man. Don't let your wife eat squirrel or rabbit, though, because the babies can come out with big old eyes. That's some old school Chickasaw knowledge. You know, my grandma ate. Uh, she was she ate scrambled pig brains. Oh, my daddy loved pig brains and eggs. Yeah, that's what my uh, my nanny ate. Yeah. And like you know, squirrel brains is a thing. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like you know, old throughout the South thing. Right. Uh, yeah, that's intense though, man. I, I might not be joining you on, on, I just say on it's that fair, journey. It's fair to say that it's a that's a minority of people um that are willing to nosh on a squirrel's brain uh i'll be dude i'll be honest with you man when you were uh you're like man we're gonna eat some indian food yeah, yeah, yeah. when we get here i was <laughs> i did in my head i was like dude i hope this doesn't get too wild because i want to be respectful <laughs> and eat whatever it is but i hope this isn't no <laughs> man, then, then when it was it grape is, juice i was like oh i can't like, handle I'm this down, man. i'm done uh, i mean seriously like the, like we have uh like sasquana is a traditional um, intestine soup. It can be a soup or it can be fried, kind of like chitlins. Mm-hmm. That's pretty challenging. Uh, tomfala, you know, if you're not into like funky, like mildly alcoholic, rotten corn stuff, that's maybe not for everybody. But most Indian food is bomb. I mean, who doesn't like fried bread? You go to any indigenous people that have been colonized throughout this entire planet, they're going to have some kind of fried bread. Is it bad for you? Yeah. But do we eat it anyway? Oh, yeah. But that's like only that's been good. around for like 200 years, though, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fl- uh, flour, all flour, uh, traditionally was corn. You know, we didn't, like, we didn't get wheat until much, much later, uh, or, or sugar for that matter, or even salt. You know, our ancestors used to process their own salt and honey, you know, for sugar, that kind of stuff. Man, okay, so that's yeah. that's actually a question yeah. that I did have when we were eating at the cultural center today is because uh, you were like, this is traditionally cooked without salt and you salt it to taste. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, but so I guess like, I mean, you know, and maybe that I'm just thinking out loud here. It would make sense to me that maybe like this region uh, would maybe have like kind of some limited spices, but any any people who are interacting with folks from like Central and South America and those trade networks mm-hmm. would have like chilies and yeah, uh, like I'm thinking especially like in the Southwest and right. stuff. But like seasoning wise, a little more limited. Yeah, for the southeastern tribes. Yeah, so, so I mean, 
when you talk about traditional foods, I mean, people will riff and do whatever they want, but you're really talking about just salt. That's it. I mean, salt and pepper, like everyone uses that, right? Mm -hmm. But you don't really get, like, in terms of southeastern Indian cuisine, unless you're going down to, like, the quesadis or the homas, you know, in Louisiana, and you get that sort of beautiful, like, you know, sort of mix up of like Indian food and Cajun food. It's like, you know, Indian and Cajun had a baby, you know, it can get pretty spicy, but no, you know, Southeastern food in particular, Chickasaw, Choctaw food is not particularly, you know, just maybe a little salt. It's pretty basic, but it's good. Salt meat's one. Salt meat's real popular. Um, You know, just we'll buy it, get cut up. You wash it a little bit to get some of that salt off and then fry it. Hog fries are a big deal. Fresh hog fry, you know, you slaughter a hog and they'll cook it. Um, that's a big deal. Wild onion dinners are huge. All the Indian churches and a bunch of our traditional ceremonial grounds will have wild onion dinners in the spring. And people will, like, make the rounds. Like, they have a calendar. Today I'm going here. Next week I'm going there. You talking about ramps? Or are you no, just- no, no. Wild onions. Not ramps are related, but that's like more northeast. Yeah, 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 yeah. So wild onions either cooked with some like with pork fat, you know, by itself, mm-hmm. kind of like um, turnip greens or collards or whatever, or with eggs. That's real popular. I like mine both ways, but eggs in particular. People will like fundraise with this stuff. Like twelve bucks, all you can eat. Da 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 da. Red beans, and fry bread, and salt meat, and wild onions. Either way, you like them. Oh man, it is so really. Nice. It's like a like a like a pancake supper or whatever. Yeah, uh, I love wild onions. It just so happens our seasonal creek out backyard. We've got huge patch of wild onions, so I don't have to go very far in the spring to get what I want. Hell, man, you were probably dealing with uh, you know until the introduction of like European based commodities, you were probably dealing with incredibly healthy people. Well, I mean. It's not to say that, like, life wasn't hard, you know, like, you're talking life expectancies, like, in the 40s and 50s sometimes. Maybe later than that, you know, as time moved on. But, yeah, I mean, they're incredibly healthy folks because they, they were eating big when it was available. Mm-hmm. And they were eating little, eating little when they had to. And they were moving all the time, you know, working real, real, real hard. Or just chilling out when there was nothing to do. Man, that's a weird concept. Like yeah. the idea of like feast and famine. Yep. And that you would like fill up when there was lots yeah. of food around. Yeah. The the Choctaw word for January means big hunger month. We don't really have any documented names. You know, it's a, it was a lunar calendar, so mm-hmm. 13 months. But yeah, in Choctaw, it's big hunger month. Because uh, that's, you know, like the the stuff that you put up in the fall starts getting, to run getting low skinny. sure sure yeah. Yeah, man you're waiting for that spring yeah and we were we were talking about um like what warriors would eat you know limited dried meat and largely this stuff called tunchoth pushat which is uh it's not a fried but it's like a almost like a corn nut or a, or a sometimes it's ground down into a rough cornmeal sort of powder that and water like they'd live on that stuff for weeks and even going into hunts or fighting for that matter they would uh, ceremonially abstain from from most food, salt, sex. You don't do none of that stuff four days before you're going out, or sometimes three days going out to do anything. 
ritual preparation to play stickball, going on a bear hunt, going to go whoop up some creeks, all the same stuff. You're not eating. And these guys would, would walk 40, 50, 60 miles, you know, rapidly. It's insane. You know, that idea of uh, ritualistic fasting is, yeah. you know, kind of worldwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's got to be something, something transcendental yeah. to it, right? Like we'll do, it depends. Every man is free to do what they want. But when we do, we may sometimes we'll do a New Year's game where it's just men playing stickball. Um, it's kind of like lacrosse, but we use two sticks. Um, anyway, east-west poles play against one another. And so some of those guys will fast three days before the event, maybe four. And some guys will do at least 24 hours. But, you know, it's a nod to those ancient traditions. Um, and on the uh, ceremonial ground, like you fast before green corn. Like you don't eat any fresh produce before green corn. At a certain point when your grounds chief says, hey, no more, no more fresh produce, they have to abstain from those foods until green corn is over. And when they break their fast, they can eat whatever they want. They have like a, surely it's like a big party after that, right? Oh, yeah. Like everyone, you know, it's like the new year. Yeah. People get crazy and eat and do all sorts of awesome stuff. I mean, green corn is like the best. It's the best. So you kind of alluded to it there, but so let's let's talk a little bit about what we're going to get into tomorrow. Yeah, and your uh, your personal association with hunting. Yeah, because it largely based around waterfowl, which I mean we were talking about like traditional Chickasaw right. hunting methods and stuff, which weren't huge in the waterfowl. Right, uh, and it definitely it definitely was different than like modern North American waterfowling, right? Like you were right. talking about like folks hunting them during the molt, getting in there mm-hmm. at nighttime with torches. Yeah. Clubbing them. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a much more, I mean, a much more effective way of getting a bunch of them. Yeah. And I think, you know, ancestors were, there was, there's these huge plants, Indian hemp. I don't know what the scientific name is, but they made netting and cordage and all that. So, I mean, any number of things. Plus our ancestors were incredibly skilled archers. You know, they they make, uh, well, still, they made and still make, like, small game arrows, blunt arrows that could, you know, easily take down a, you know, a, a mallard on a pond or something like that. I'm sure one of those, like, squirrel sticks, someone totally chunked one of those at something. Right, right. So, ancestral hunting, um, you know, there's this, this is probably a little further the topic, but uh, animals were considered relatives, and so you approach them in a particular way. And if you were going to hunt particularly like ceremonially significant species, you would prepare for that. It's like we have records of how a man would prepare for a bear hunt, for example. And so they're hunting bear, deer. There were elk east of the Mississippi. Yeah, yeah. Um, we talked a lot. About, yeah, a lot. Bison uh, were still in the old country, in Chickasaw Nation, until I don't know, maybe 18 teens, maybe a little earlier than that, maybe late 18th century, but anyway, hunting that. And, of course, any number of small game and waterfowl. So when I first started waterfowling, this was like 2015, this is completely outside the lived experience of our elders. They were like, man, we didn't hunt. We didn't hunt ducks. We didn't hunt geese, none of that stuff. 
And so I went to some of our tribal archaeologists, and they were like, well, no, actually, y'all did. Like, we found this kind of bones in the trash pit. There's mallard bones. There's swan bones. We have ethnographic records, like from the French, for example, that describe, you know, how they hunted swans. I may have, I mentioned to you earlier, swans are the most ceremonially significant bird for Chickasaw people and, and for many of the other tribes in the southeast, too. We hadn't had access to them since removal and frankly market hunting you know destroyed swans that used to come down on the mississippi river so i went to north carolina a couple years ago i shot one swan which is allowed by permit and then i uh, my friends gifted me feathers from two swans and so we brought that back and there it's being reintroduced in the community um you know swan wings at the ceremonial ground to fan the fires like people getting married, incorporating swan feathers in that ceremony, hanging them from their rearview mirrors in their cars. It's pretty cool. Um, the language committee, we actually found, we didn't know the word for swan, but we found this old word list, um, and we found that the word for swan is olkak, which is an onomatopoeia. You know, they make that oh, oh, oh sound. And they were like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, that's our word for swan now. And they also rediscovered the word for wild geese, which is hancha, again an onomatopoeia, because they go, ha, 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 you know, as sure. geese are wont to do. At any rate, um, there were traditional roles for men that hunted swans. They were so significant. I mean, they were used in naming ceremonies and birth ceremonies, all sorts of different different things, crowns of swan feathers, you know, adorned a warrior's head when he received a new name. They would, they would put down, you know, on the top of his head during the ceremony, stuff like that. The, the main religious leaders wore capes of swan feathers, you know, just entire capes, like down to their ankles sometimes, composed of swan feathers. So we knew that that was happening. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, when you think about like sort of, you know, sort of like the big charismatic animals, it's going to be bear and deer and elk and that kind of stuff. But, you know, people are people are people. Chickasaws are scrappy, just like everybody else. And you eat what's available to you. You know, uh, that's just how it was. So the the old folks sort of, you know, the elders like kind of figured out like, okay, well, Josh can be hunting ducks. That's okay, I guess. As long as, you know, he, like, eats them and all that stuff. They don't like sport hunting. Um, so I grew up. Uh, Dad introduced me. My father introduced me to deer hunting East Texas near Trinity and Huntsville. And then, you know, like, maybe, like, a bycatch of a hunt would be, like, we shot a turkey or something. We weren't ever serious turkey hunters. So just deer, uh, dove hunting, that kind of stuff. So we moved, when we moved back to the reservation, started hunting, and uh, a creek friend of mine took me, this was in 2015, so long after we had moved back, but uh, he took me duck hunting. We just laid up on a, his farm pond with like a camo tarp. I think we shot four or five, like a, pa a pair of gadwalls, a ring neck, and something else I can't remember. And it was just like the most magical like, why did I waste 30-some-odd years of my life not duck hunting? So since then, I went, I mean, I went nuts. I went all in. Uh, you know, getting my own rig. You know, like all the motion decoys, you know, Chinese decoys. Like I had all that stuff. All the, you know, 
fancy clothes and all this. And then I, then I started like collecting old decoys and realizing the sort of heritage behind it. And I was like, man, no, I don't, I'm going to shoot a side by side. I'm going to wear this wax jacket. It feels good. I'm going to start making my own decoys. So I started hunting. My wood, my rig is entirely wood now. I don't hunt any plastic decoys from my own rig anyway. Um, and then because I'm an artist and I've been doing, you know, Chickasaw work for decades, I slowly started to, like, access some of that ancestral wood carving, figurative carvings of birds and humans and that kind of stuff. So now I'm, uh, I was trained to make core sound style decoys by Jerry Talton. Um, and so I use those techniques, but I, uh, adorn them with imagery from my multi-tribal ancestry. So you get a pintail that has a 1500 year old sun symbol on the speculum. And some guys actually hunt those things. It's pretty crazy. So it's like, I, I guess, didn't realize it. I didn't realize the, the duck hunting had it only been since 2015, man. Cause yeah, I mean, yeah. You, oh yeah. I mean, like I did the same thing. You went deep, man. You got, you got a couple of bird dogs in the backyard. Yeah, yep. you got uh, two poodle pointers. Yeah, like kind of esoteric bird dogs, even. Yeah. Uh, although my buddy, uh, my buddy Jay Byer, who I was elk hunting with last January, he's yeah. he's got a poodle pointer too. They're uh, really cool dogs. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. You got uh, a wood shop right here. Yep. Making decoys. I still make working birds, you know, for guys that will actually hunt them. Um, the only difference between, like, a, a tribal bird and a working bird is that on a working bird, I, I might not put tribal designs on I just paint it like a proper core sound style, real art deco, uh, super clean. It's not realistic. I'm not making ducks. I'm making an image of a duck. And ducks, frankly, don't care. If I can kill a duck over, like, you know, bleach bottles painted black i can kill a duck over have you done that anything have you killed them over bleach bottles no nah, but you could you know ramsey russell was talking about how they kill them in pakistan they like blow up black trash bags you know i want i really do wonder about that because like they, you know you always hear that uh you always hear that uh like you know you used to be able to kill snow geese just with a bunch of white trash bags right 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 uh I wonder, so say like Pakistan, right? Yeah. There can't be just a ton of people duck hunting in Pakistan. I bet you they That's can, true. I bet you they can get away with a lot more because those birds aren't seeing stuff. Yeah, they're not educated. Now, I do wonder with like everybody's got these like photorealistic duck decoys now, right? Yeah. Uh, I wonder if running a kind of like a more old school spread mm -hmm. with basic blockier colors yeah wouldn't actually be an advantage because it would be something different yeah uh and it, it wouldn't let the ducks key in on like i've seen that a million times right and, i mean and that's something if, if you think about not just core sound which is coastal north carolina like carteret county and so forth but if you look at curry tuck you go up and look up into maryland um Simple block painting, high contrast. I think that's what ducks key in on is that strong distinction between, say, like a black body and a white speculum, you know, or a gray body and a green speculum. Um, some of the 
most famous market rig decoys, you know, market hunters. Sure. Um, from Tusk, uh, North Carolina. Those things have like white bull's eyes painted on the back. Like it's like a redhead or a blackhead. Mm-hmm. All, all one color, you know, like say a gray body and a big old white target on the back of that thing. And that fella killed so many ducks. You know, it was bonkers. Might have been using punk guns, though, too, man. Yeah, that's true. I'll give you that. Uh, so, yeah, the, I mean, the whole, like, the the intersection, like, as I mentioned previously, this is not, um, it's not a traditional practice as understood by our elders. They didn't even deer hunt, you know, in the old days because there were no deer, right, when they were coming up in the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Like, mm-hmm. The numbers were so low. So when you talk about hunting with them, childhood stories of hunting, they're talking about rabbits and squirrels, you know, that's it. Maybe some coons or possums or something like that. So for me, my perspective is I'm a contemporary Chickasaw person. And if I'm doing things, I'm going to do it in a way that respects my ancestors. But like, you know, I'm here to like feed my family, you know, I'm just doing what my ancestors did. I'm just doing it in a new and a different sort of way. So this idea that like Chickasaws made decoys, a hundred years ago, that that ain't the thing. I made the first Chickasaw decoy because I'm a Chickasaw person who went nuts for duck hunting and wanted to make my own decoys. So I did. The very first one I made was a gadwall, and it's owned by the National Museum of the American Indian. Really? In D.C. Yeah. In fact, it's uh, it's August. It's their their a member calendar. Mm-hmm. I'm Mr. August this year. Oh, Mr. August. Oh yeah. Well, the, the decoy that I made is is uh. You know, that's wild, man. So, man, I forget. I want to say like it was someplace in the Southwest, you know, like the the reed decoy. Spirit Cave, Paiutes. Yep. So, I mean, that kind of puts you up there in that lexicon, huh? Oh, man. When I, I, went to, I went to the New York branch of the National Museum of the American Indian, they wanted me to come do a summer program where I was talking to kids about hunting and making decoys and that kind of stuff, which is bonkers. I mean, these New York kids are like, what do you mean you got a gun? You go out and shoot your food? Yeah, 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 One kid was like, what do you do if you don't get any ducks? I was like, we go home and eat bologna like anybody else. Just blew their minds. Anyway, so I'm up there. And they have some of those spirit cave Paiute, ancestral Paiute decoys. And, I mean, it is just it's something else. 1,500, 2,000 years, however old they are. And they're just right there in front of me. Like, I seen them in National Geographic when I was a boy. And now I'm looking at it, like, and they're like through re- the glass. They're remarkably uh, identifiable as what they are. Oh, yeah, yeah. So for your listeners, and I'm sure if they you would have been. Seen them, well, just real quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no, no. Describe them, and then I'll bring them up on it. Well, they're 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 uh, tule reeds bundled together, and then they're essentially, in most cases, skinned. Like a, the real famous one is a canvasback. It's the it's the skin, the feathered skin of a canvasback that's been applied to this tule reed uh, base body, basically. It's bonkers it's super cool found in a cave by some miner i don't know when maybe early 20th century there's a there's a, a photo of them in a basket yeah with this like dirty face miner dude like just brought it out of the hole it's something else and the descendants of those people are still around like in nevada for example mm-hmm. and they're still making those decoys oh are they really yep yep pretty cool there's probably like a the there's probably like a big collector's market for them now, I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know. 
I don't know if anyone's still hunting ducks with them or not, but I mean, there's some good hunting out west on the res. Navajo has killer duck hunting all across Utah, um, California, Nevada. Lots of good sort of deserty kind of duck hunting. Really, there's yeah. a there's a dude I've come across on Instagram. It's called like desert waterfowl or something mm -hmm, yeah. yeah maybe he might be in arizona or something yeah uh, i mean and i'm you know you don't those aren't places you associate with it but i'm sure like migrating birds especially when water's in short supply man like right. when water pops up man they yeah. get in there well and there's there's like uh, a hopi friend of mine um he makes uh kachina dolls like he sent me a duck kachina they have duck kachinas they have duck dances we have a duck dance um you know it's people don't think about it but you know, what's no. a kachina though? Um, it's a representation of these mountain spirits uh, that come down. It's their deities, basically, for the Pueblo people, mm -hmm. like the Hopis, and then the northern and southern Rio Grande Pueblos. They all have these um, little dolls that sort of embody different kinds of spirits, and they're teaching tools for children. Um, when you, if you, you're really generally not allowed to see the kachina dances but uh people will embody that spirit and dress like those those uh kachinas and dance in their rituals but the pueblos do not mess around like you can't even go on uh, on their reses if you're not a member of their pueblo during the high sort of ceremonial days like it's not a thing really yeah they don't they're wickedly conservative and they've been doing that same thing for thousands of years zuni pueblo is a good example akama pueblo yeah it's pretty powerful stuff did you make this did you carve that or is that something you've collected yeah so no that one is uh was made by a guy named harry hamilton who learned uh we're talking about a, a canvas uh, a wire canvas covered uh, oh, that is what it, I thought. That was a carved decoy, yeah. but you can see yeah. you can see the yeah. uh, structure underneath it now. So Harry Hamilton was in the service. I can't remember if he was Navy or whatever, but at any rate, he learned from these Curry Tuck guys north of Core Sound to make this particular kind of decoy, and he brought it back to Core Sound and uh, started making them sort of in that style. Um, so yeah, I have I collect I have a bunch of old decoys. I collect um, Carteret County exclusively these days anyway so that's core sound like stacy uh, stacy north carolina these particular makers and then when i can i buy decoys that were made by a man named charles sumner bunn who is a shinnecock indian from long island shinnecock montauk and he uh, made some of the most famous and most valuable decoys um, in the world and of course, uh, they were misattributed to a, a white guy that didn't actually exist. Um, but now we've uncovered it, and people can't lie anymore. Some of the best decoys ever made on this continent were made by an Indian guy, Charles Sumner Bunn, Shinnecock Indian. I have three of his. Really? Um, I can't afford his shorebirds. His shorebirds are worth more than my house, but I have three of his. Yeah, those, dude, those ducks. decoys get ridiculous. Ridiculous. Oh, it was insane. When we were in New York, I was talking about going to NMAI mm -hmm. to do that demo. They were, um, uh, Guy and Dieter's an auction house, and they were shopping around these two decoys from the Keynes brothers. 
incredibly famous South Carolina snaky neck mallards. I got to hold the hen and I got to hold the drake. They later sold for, I don't know, $1.5 million or something crazy like that. Good Lord. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's all, you know, value is subjective, but yeah, man, I loved holding those decoys. So strange it to think something. about how something that was designed to be so utilitarian. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a call guy, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. and now I don't have, I don't have a, uh, like expensive collection or anything, yeah. but, uh, like, I mean, people have probably heard me talk about, like, uh, like I think what really got me into calls was P.S. Olds, like the hard rubber yeah. calls, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah, man, I've got a P.S. Olt in the box, and it's got an original price tag on it, yeah. $2. Yeah. You know? And, people I mean, it shit, pretty if, penny. if someone had a wild hair up their ass right now, you could... You know, you could probably get five hundred bucks for something like that on eBay. Yeah, no wild. Uh, it is, it is wild, wild. I mean, I pro- I promise you, if any of these old these old dudes from Stacy, North Carolina, just as an example, like, you know, you get a, a decoy made by Mitchell Fulcher, you know, a famous pintail, it's worth like forty or fifty thousand bucks, and that fool sold that decoy for like. A buck, yeah, maybe two. Yeah, yeah, these old heads saw the prices today. They'd be like, "I don't know what's wrong with y'all. People are idiots. You need to get your head checked." Um, so I don't, uh, I don't have. I have some older decoys here in the house, um, and then the majority of my collections at work because we have fire suppression, and I spend so much time at work. Uh, my boss calls my office the hunting lodge. I, I care about uh, Chickasaw language, and uh, I like eating good, I like my wife and my kids. And I like shooting ducks and everything associated with it. Do you mount birds? No, no. I, I mean, not me personally. Yeah. No, I mean, do you have any birds that are mounted? Like- yeah, yeah. In my office, I have. Um, I only ever mount um, things that I've shot on tribal land. So I have a wood duck right now, and I have a canvas back. Um, I'm hoping to get a pintail this year. Um, but generally, um, I try to work locally so that, you know, like, I could still eat it. Mm-hmm. I hate shipping them off and knowing that that meat's not going to get. Consumed. Yeah, that's a it weird really thing. Bothers me. I guess I've never had a bird mounted where I got to keep the meat. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, like I've, I kind of was mounting birds. Uh, I was mounting geese mm-hmm. uh, until I got kind of like all the Arkansas geese, right? So right. I got like, and and I specifically was mounting geese at my place because I yeah. everybody has mallards, right? And I was like, I'll just have geese in here. Yeah, instead. yeah, yeah. But uh, so you got a Ross Ross's geese, eagle head, and all that stuff. Yeah, I got so snow geese. I've got I've got like a a blue and a white snow goose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a Ross's goose. I've got a speck, obviously. Right. I killed a Canada last year. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, if I really if I. You know, so there is a blue phase. There's a blue phase Ross, uh, just like there's a blue phase snow goose. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's fewer of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I mean, if I did, if I killed a blue phase Ross, I'd, sure. I'd probably mount that. But other than that, I feel like I'm kind of done mounting birds. Yeah. Uh, it man, it would be just because they're so pretty. Like a a turkey, mm. a full mount on a turkey would be yeah. cool, but. Yeah. They take up a lot of space. Yeah, and they're like it's like twelve hundred bucks. Oh, man. it's the whole thing. I d- I did a fan mount with the biggest turkey I ever shot. But generally speaking, like uh, like I shot a 
Jake this year just to eat. I ship all those feathers to a buddy of mine, a Hopi guy, who uses them in different ways on his res. Um, yeah, when we were yeah. hunting in California, the uh, my buddy Jimmy, like he was a, uh, he was giving his feathers to a uh, an indigenous woman there that was doing like ceremonial stuff with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Uh, I kept the tail fans. I let them have the other ones, but I kept the tail fans. Oh, that's great. Uh, he was like, you know, you can give them the tail fans too. And I was like, I cannot give them the tail fans too, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now I've got like a stack of, now I've got like a stack of uh, tail fans in my shop. Yeah. And I, I like, like I, you know, I gave one to my yeah. kid's school. And I mean, it does get to where like, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to. Oh, I'll, I'll fix you one up. I'll make you traditional Chickasaw tail fan. It's a whole thing. It's cool. What What do you mean? What do, what do you they, mean? They take them and they literally turn it into a fan. Oh, really? Put the feathers a particular way. You pierce the bases, make a handle. It's a whole thing. It's cool. Have you, uh, have you carved a turkey decoy yet? No. No. Why are you saying it like that? That does not interest me. Really? That is too much work. <laughs> well, just because it's so big? Well, yeah. I mean, so huge, so much work. I would have to charge so much money for it. And no, know, I'm talking about for you to hunt over it. I'm not talking about making that yeah. buck, man. Yeah, I could probably pull that off. That'd be dope, dude. I probably I could pull that off. You set it up to where you could put a. Yeah. Oh, we're going to enter the reaping debate. You set, it, <laughs> set it up to where you could put like a tail fan on it. Yeah. And uh, no, I could kill your turkeys over that on I could tribal that. land. Yeah. That'd be neat. I, I actually I know several decoy makers that have uh, have made their own, like Jake, for example, or Jake and a hen, mm-hmm. you know, breeding hen combo, and have killed over them. But uh, man, I don't know. Turkeys just. That's a challenge. Maybe after I finish this full-size swan that I'm supposed to be working on. Yeah, I mean, if you can do a swan, you can do a turkey, man. Yeah. Uh, you're also doing in here, you're, uh, and I guess you're kind of becoming known for it, is doing these uh, ivory-billed woodpeckers. Yeah, I do ivory-billed and pileateds. They're, they're um, quite popular. I did a flying ivory-billed woodpecker that placed at Santa Fe Indian Market in August, and uh, I sold every woodpecker i brought it's something about the color combination who's buying it is it is it indian folks buying it or is it just like no 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 the the lady that bought um the flying uh ivory billed woodpecker was uh i think originally from taiwan uh if i remember right she was a real sweetheart I got to meet her daughter really cool really cool lady but no i mean you know just like anybody else. like we collect like indian arts like we collect one another's work but when we go to market, it's it's for, generally speaking so the customers. These are, are I mean, so these are these are like art collectors that are buying this stuff. This, yeah. These aren't folks that are necessarily wanting to right hunt. Well, I mean, obviously you can't hunt on ivory build, but right. Well, my my decoy work is interesting because it resonates with people like it resonates with hunters, people that aren't hunters, but maybe they're into Indian artwork, you know, folk art collectors, Western art collectors i mean it kind of the people that collect my stuff are really quite diverse but but i'm i've made uh i've made birds for quite a few tribal members um i made one for creek nation it's in their hospital up at Mulgee, i think i made an ivory build for them i'm working on an ivory build for sterling harjo who's the director of uh, reservation dogs 
working on one for him. Oh, dope. Yeah, a professor in Georgia. Um, yeah, I have a long list of, of people that want ivory build in particular. But some people like the pileated stew. But um, this, you know, this is my side hustle. I just do it because I love it. I always have to do something creative. I get irritable if I don't. And uh, I'm trying to pay for my wife's new kitchen. So I got bills. Yeah, man, you got that granite countertop over there, I saw it. Yeah, she uh, wants to replace it. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. She wants brand new kitchen. <laughs> hey, man. Happy wife. Do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah. Uh, we we mentioned it before, too, but like that TV show, Reservation Dogs. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like, it's just like, uh, it's got a, garnered a lot of critical acclaim. Right. Right. Uh, and it's just like popular with folks. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably a little culty, like cult classic kind of thing. Like people feel like they're cool if they watch it. Uh, yeah. It is cool. What is the, uh, that's, what reservation is that supposed to be based on? Creek. Creek so, Nation. So, Muskogee, I mean, Muskogee just, Nation. So just north of here. Yeah. So sort of like north and Northeast. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I drove... Yeah. I drove through mm-hmm. Muskogee Reservation coming right. coming here. Yeah. Directly north of us is Seminole, and then you've got Creek Nation, and then Cherokee Nation, and then down in the southeast is Choctaw Nation. Is it filmed on up it, there? It was filmed on the res in Oklahoma. Um, Sterling Harjo lives in Tulsa. He's a Creek Seminole guy. The entire writer's room was native folks cast is largely native folks i mean the primary cast are all you know indian folks but uh it is just i don't know if you haven't seen it it is so it's like the first thing made by indian people for indian people it is so real it resonates so hard it is totally oaky just res-tastic but what's so beautiful about it, my wife, who's a non-Indian, you know, she says that sort of these universal truths come through that even she is a woman who works in our community, works for our people, but is not herself American Indian person or native person. Uh, it just hits her in all the feels. I mean, we watch every episode together. Uh, Were they always calling it? They're always calling everybody shit asses? Shit asses, yes. That's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a... It's sometimes it's appropriate. Sometimes it's appropriate. Uh, we had this thing called Indian Ar- Indian Arttober, where we're supposed to do thirty-one new things for the month, and you post them on Instagram. Mm-hmm. And I was really bad; I had a bunch of stuff going on. But so shit ass was one of the uh, prompts, and so I just put a self-portrait that I drew. It's up upstairs uh, next to the fireplace because you know I'm, sometimes I'm kind of a shit ass. Is that just is that just like a Kind of a commonplace slang word, and yeah, 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 yeah. It's like you know, don't be a shit ass, don't be a dumbass, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, like uh, you, you know, you see the 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 cop, um, and it's like, don't be a shit ass, go vote, don't be a shit ass, call your grandma, stuff like that. That dude, it's that- just meme, the meme culture coming, like taking over reservation dogs, all the Indian meme people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is next level. It's just, it's so amazing, man. What do you think about? Indian Twitter, that's a whole other thing. You go on Indian Twitter, man, I don't know who's cooler, black Twitter or Indian Twitter. I mean, you know, I just cool. heard something that might all get shut down now that <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, old boy got it. Uh, man, what? I cannot comment. 
Yeah, that's that's beyond the purview of this uh, yeah, podcast. That's a different podcast. What is you know what I've always wondered, right? So, uh, and this this is just like me asking you as an individual, but yeah, yeah. Uh, so you know you got like if so if I'm thinking of like an Indian actor, like the first person that's going to come to my mind is West Studi, right? Sure. Like West Studi's been in everything. Oh yeah, he was uh, honored. He was honored recently with the. Uh, an Oscar, like an honorary Oscar or something along those lines. I mean, he's been, I had dinner with him. Oh, really? He's a cool dude. He, and his, his role uh, in Reservation Dogs is just, it's, it's amazing. Uh, dude, he, like, he is like forever in my mind, he is a, what's that dude? That Pawnee, the Pawnee dude? Yeah, yeah, and uh, uh, from Last uh, of the Mohicans. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about, he played a Pawnee guy on, uh, Dances with Wolves. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, he, he's surrounded by by these Lakota folks, and he screams and does his work call and holds his hatchet up in the air, and then he gets shot and he falls dead off of his horse. Dude, I was, was thinking he was like he was like a real yeah kind of a hole in Last of the Mohicans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then if you like hear his backstory, like he was like you know survived a, a great trauma and is kind of like living out this revenge fetish. Right. Uh, yeah, but, West West Studi, uh, you know, Cher- like fluent Cherokee speaker, grew up in a Cherokee speaking home, veteran, served in Nam, if I'm not mistaken. He's uh, uh, there's another cat. I don't dude. know his name. He's in Dances with Wolves. Yeah, Graham Green. Graham Green. Yeah, that's, yeah, 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 that's definitely yeah. him. He's First Nations. I can't I can't remember which uh, which First Nation he's from, but yeah, he's Canadian. But Indian. I feel like those two those two dudes are like. They've been in everything, right? Yeah. Uh, there's just kind of this handful of, uh, I mean, hell, most of them were in Dances with Wolves. Like, uh, so the, the lady who played Graham Greene's wife in that. Yeah. Uh, she's been in tons of stuff. Yep. Uh, there's yep. a younger guy, too, that uh, he was like um, Law and Order, actually. Uh, I can't remember his name. But I've always wondered... You know, like there's this, uh, Hollywood has had this habit of, you know, any Asian can play any Asian, right? So like you'll have a a bunch of people that are supposed to be Japanese and it's like Koreans and Chinese people or or vice versa, right? Right. And then uh, with uh, American Indians, it's like kind of the same thing, right? And, and neat, you know, needed like a ethnically ambiguous dark-haired woman to play American Indian when there's plenty of qualified American Indian actresses who can do that. Well, it's the whole thing. You're also uh you're also uh you're dealing with people that look really different. Yeah, right? Right. Uh and you see that on reservation dogs. You know, it it runs the gamut, you know. There's white Steve whether he's an Indian or not, they don't ever say. There's a guy who's a, a freedman, black Indian fella who's on there. Uh, yeah, there's all sorts. Brown Indians, white Indians, and black Indians. If, if your listeners want to watch real TV made by Indian people, Rutherford Falls and Reservation Dogs. Those are the two shows most recently that I would recommend. Rutherford Falls... Uh, recently canceled by peacock they suck they need a second third season rather 
and uh, I hope they'll they'll do it. Shout out to Jana, I love you. Ed Helms, he's the man, and Sterling Hartro. I mean, God, that whole writers' room. I love all those guys. Reservation dogs, though. I mean, it's going strong there, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Sterling's already talking about like season four and five, and it's, I was about it's, to say, I mean, it's, it's like thing. a big, it's like a. Well, big and he's hit. got some movies coming out too. Like, if I'm not mistaken, he's going to be directing the Jim Thorpe biopic uh, uh, that uh, is coming out at some some point. I don't know when they're going to start principal photography or whatever they call it, but yeah, Sterling's the man. He still returns my texts, which is real sweet because he's like super famous Indian dude now, and he doesn't need to do that, but. I love him. Well, He's you know, it's kind of like we were talking about, especially when you're dealing with a something that's like kind of ultimately, ultimately like a small community. Indian people, country right? is teeny. Yep. It's uh, yeah. Like it's we it's weird to me that people I saw on TV and stuff, you know, five years ago, mm-hmm. that I could text just because there's really you know, quote-unquote hunting world, man. I mean, right. I don't know. There's maybe few hundred, couple hundred, few hundred people in it, right? Right. Like, everybody's one degree removed from everybody yeah. else. Yeah. Right? Like, uh, like I got a text tonight um, at dinner from my sister-in-law. She sends me a photo of this music program, and there's a piece written by a guy named Jared in Pichanchaha Tate. She's like, hey... Is this that guy you're working on that opera with? I'm writing a, the Chickasaw libretto for his opera. Oh, wow. And I was like, yeah. She's in Minnesota. Her kid's playing, I think, a piece by Jared. And we're working on this libretto together. Indian country's teeny. It's teeny. Like, you know, Sterling bought an oh, ivory bill woodpecker, and then he gifted that to Ethan Hawke. So oh, I'm really? Like, I'm like one degree of separation from Ethan Hawke. Oh, man, dude. I, he's too famous to, like, you know, acknowledge my uh my message but i was like man i'm so jacked that you got that woodpecker and so uh it's been two or three years now and i owe sterling one so i've sold it i've made it and sold it three times this one is definitely going to him that's dope man <laughs> yeah and like we were yeah. talking about like the supposedly the the video of the ivory build woodpecker is like yeah like legit like seven minutes from black dick revival it's just like right up the road there in bayou debut yeah uh which Hey man, have you spent much time in? Uh, have you spent much time like in the woods and the waters of like your ancestral homeland? Yeah, I've been to. I've been back to Tupelo area, mm-hmm. all at, at least once or twice every year for the longest, other than than COVID. In fact, um, one of the sort of founding matriarchs of our family, we identified. Her pre-removal allotted land. She ran a an inn along this this big sort of trade road, and we went back and actually me and two my mother and then another one of her descendants did an archaeological dig with uh, Dr. Terry Week, who specializes in uh, transatlantic slave trade sites, um, and we were looking for evidence of the enslaved Africans that she owned that were making bricks on her property that later removed with her and her family to Indian territory. So I have real deep, strong connections to that place. I mean, I've stood on many, Do you, do you ever go back there places. and hunt? I haven't, no. I uh, I want to. I think it's, it'd be meaningful to take a deer, 
a bear, a duck, whatever. I don't think they ha- I don't know if they have bears in northeastern Mississippi, but I could shoot a deer. Man, I don't know if they've gotten that far over. I think I they're mean, more delta. Yeah. Yeah. Uh which is yeah. like that's where like the last ones kind of were anyway. Yeah. Like the the last the last uh black bears in Arkansas were like damn near Mississippi. Right. 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 Uh yeah. And but I don't know, Mississippi doesn't have a season or anything yet. Yeah. Louisiana is it's coming. I think next year mm-hmm. Louisiana is going to have a mm-hmm. season. Here in Oklahoma you've got a season. Right, right. Uh obviously Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, I, I had mentioned before that one of the like you know ancestral rites of passage for a for a boy to become a man was to harvest a black bear and then of course, you know, your first war deed where you would you know not count coup because that's not doesn't really work for us, but you know, you did some war deed um, and you get a name and that kind of stuff. It's just sort of that, be, you know, coming of age ritual. I have never killed a bear, so technically, I guess I'm not a man, but uh, I'm looking forward to giving it a shot. Man, I'll tell you what, too. If you think about pre-European settlement, mm. uh, now that I've done it uh, a couple times. I don't think it would have been that. I mean, there were so many bears. I don't think it would have been like it's going to, I think it'd be way harder for you to do it now than it would have been for you to do it 200 years ago. I, I, I think mean, you're, you're talking about, right. you know, they say there was 50,000 black bears in Arkansas. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about thick, just yeah. like if you just hung out in the woods, yeah. you'd come across a bear. Yeah. If you think about like Holt Collier or Daniel Boone, yeah. whatever. Yeah. They killed a bunch of bears because there was a bunch of bears. Yeah, I mean, a lot fewer when when Holt was around, yeah, man. Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, he started running out of them there towards stone the cold. end. Stone Cold, yeah, Stone Cold Killer. Uh, but, yeah, man, there's places used to be replete with yeah. uh, with black bears. Yeah. That's something I'd like to see, man, is, uh, like, it'd be rad, like, the way you drive around and you see deer, it'd be rad. rad. I mean, I'm, I guess you could go to there's places you could hell, you'd oh, probably go sure. to New Jersey and see yeah. bears all Jersey over the place. Jersey or... Like Hyde County, we're talking about Hyde County, North Carolina. Yeah. You go out at dusk, and they're all in the fields eating corn, getting big. Yeah, that's wild, man. Yeah. 800-pound uh, bears, it's bonkers. bonkers. That's wild. I don't dude. need an 800-pounder. I'll take a 300-pounder. I mean, hell, dude, chances are you're not going to kill a 300-pounder. I mean, you know, like average. Chances are I'm going to kill no bear at all. <laughs> no, I mean, you can do it, but, I mean, like an average <laughs> size, an average size black bear sounds like, hunt, you know, and Arkansas, like yeah, 125 yeah, yeah. pounds. They're not near as big as people think they are, right? Yeah. They also, like, they photograph way bigger, I feel mm. like. Like, I I posted this picture of this bear that I took this year. And, I mean, I just, like, propped the phone up on some rocks there and took a picture. Yeah. And uh, I f- the, the way people were reacting to it, I was like, oh, they think this bear is, like, way bigger than this bear actually is. Oh, I know. I did. I thought it was 400 Yeah, people think it's like some giant bear, and it's not, man. Yeah. Uh, I think they just kind of read that way. Uh, I mean, it was still hard to flip around and drag and move and do all that stuff, but it wasn't like. Well, they're imposing from, you know, formidable. Like, they're just, there's something, there's something supernatural. They're, man, they're powerful. They're special critters, man. They really are, dude. Uh, They. You know, and this is like a broad generalization, but, you know, like, as I understand it, like a lot of indigenous cultures, like, regard them as as special, right? Or, like, regard them as, uh, right. uh, 
like teachers or like yep. involved with medicine or something like that. Yeah. They're uh, or like kind of very closely related to human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I don't know that I'm clear on all the reasons for that. Yeah. But I I can tell you that nothing moves the way a black bear does in the woods mm-hmm. that I've seen. Yet. Yeah. Like the the way they move is uh it's uh they have they have a different relationship with the world around them mm-hmm. than all those animals that are prey species. Yeah, yeah. They have this sort of like uh self-possession. They're moving confidently through a world where they're the top predator other than us. Yeah, I mean nothing's once they get to a certain size, yeah. I mean like What's I said, other than another, out? other than another, another bear, bear right. or a person, man, right. like nothing's messing with yeah. them. And I think our ancestors saw, like you know, you you look at a at a bear without its hide. There's something strangely human about it, right? I think they were recognizing some of that stuff. And of course, there's ancestral ideas about the connection between an animal and the spirit of that animal, and then you know its role as a it's a clan animal, for example. You know, all of those animals have powers. And and if we, you know, take them in a traditional way, we have to acknowledge their spirits and do certain things, you know, to honor them. Otherwise, why would they reveal themselves and allow themselves to be killed by us if we're not treating them right? Because mm. they're relatives. They're not just animals. They're relatives. Sam Johnson, we call him Kosi. Uh, he... Uh, we were hanging out. We were talking about making lie and hunting when he was a kid and stuff. And he's still living. He's got dementia. He's not. He's really nonverbal these days. But he told me that uh, you know, Josh, you see some of these guys around here and they're they're shooting coyotes. He called them wolves. He said they're shooting wolves. He said you shouldn't do that. He said they're your relatives. He said we don't kill wolves. So I never shot another coyote. It also isn't doing anything to thin them out. I mean, yeah. I mean, are, are you? They, I, they'll fill the vacuum. They will yeah. come in. It's it's well. A, I mean, you know thing. that like when you like you get, uh, you kill a coyote, man, and like the females will start dropping more pups. Right. Like you're not going to shoot a coyote out. Mm-mm, no. Uh, when you know, in our ancestral like, ways, like you know, Chickasaws didn't even encounter coyotes. Yeah, they until, weren't here until they removed. Right. They yeah. didn't even enter Mississippi till like the '50s, I think. This now, yeah, there would there would have been wolves, red but, wolves, but there wouldn't have been coyotes, right? Right. right. So yeah, the the when we talk about um, red wolves or just the original word is nashoba, it's talking about those red wolves. Chickasaws didn't encounter gray wolves, but maybe when they were going up to fight in yeah, the way north, north or something. Yeah. yeah. Um, one word for coyote means the yellow wolf. And that would have been a relatively new term, a 19th century sort of term, when our ancestors first encountered coyotes. Same thing with armadillos. Pauline Walker is one of my language teachers who passed away some years ago, and she said, you know, Josh, when I was a little kid, there were no armadillos. She said, I didn't even see them until I, like, I had kids. It's like in the 60s. Yeah, they've been moving up. Like when I was a kid, there yeah. weren't armadillos in Missouri yet. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing that's really beautiful to and to remind people that like, you know, American Indian culture and lifeways and languages in particular, they're not static, right? They're still living. So like our ancestors created a word for horse when they first encountered Spaniards on a mm-hmm. horse. They created a word for white person. They created a word for armadillo. 
they created a word for coyote. The word for armadillo, um, some people say shokata, which means the white pig. Um, but we say hatakilapa, which means uh, the eater of dead people. Because they're always futzing around in graveyards and stuff and digging, digging, bugs and, digging up bugs and yeah. stuff. Man. There's another one that means um, the pig with hard skin, which is kind of cool. Because they're kind of pig-like. And, and in fact, that, that's a, another interesting distinction or, or point to draw. Um, the original word for possum was shuka. And when our ancestors encountered pigs, they named that shuka. And then modified the word for possum. So now it's like shokata, like I mentioned, similar word for armadillo. Or um, there's one for possum that means uh, like the one that grins. Chakslihili. Like if you ask me, hey, what's your word for possum? I'd say that. Chakslihili. It means the grinning one, the smiling one. And even possums figure really significantly in our uh, like oral histories, traditional narratives and stuff. There's all these old school animal stories that are that were designed to teach, to impart moral teachings without this sort of over didactic, you know, Western thing like, and here's the lesson of this story, kids. So when you learn the story of Possum who had a, this elaborately, um, you know, sort of super beautiful bushy tail and he was always walking around showing people look how beautiful i am all the animals got mad so at night they sent a worm to eat all the hair off his tail and that's why his tail's naked or he uh, tricked a deer into killing itself by running headlong into a persimmon tree at the base of a hill he thought it was so funny that he killed a deer that his mouth was permanently stretched into that grin that you see today stuff like that you know, so sometimes it explains, our animal stories explain, like, natural things, like why something came to be this way, like why an alligator has scaly skin. In other ways, it's like, uh, hey, kids, don't do this. You need to, uh, you, you don't need to put yourself above others. That is not a community value. Don't be showing off your fancy tail or the worm will come and eat it. Yeah, that's how they used to teach kids in the old days. You know, they weren't like, now, kid, don't, you know, don't go out and be eating stuff in the woods. They tell the story about the woman that ate eggs and became a snake. You don't want to be a snake woman. Yeah, it's like an Aesop's fable or exactly. something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so what's the plan tomorrow, man? I guess we're going to have to get some shit out of here because we got to get up early. Yeah, so we're going to we'll, hunt this. You're calling it an impoundment. Yeah, so on the, on the reservation, most of the large bodies of water are uh, impoundments created from creeks back in the 30s the wpa came in and created these holdings to you know hold water and so we're hunting at lula which is near kelahoma traditional community that we saw mm -hmm. today and so we'll uh head out about we'll meet up at 5 15 and then go out there and get set up it's a really really big body of water it's weightable depth all the way across so it's two to three feet deep at this point. Um, we had good good hunting this morning. You know, we could have easily had a four man. There was just two of us there, but uh, it'll be uh, it'll be fun. We'll be hunting over a, a bunch of my wooden decoys that friends and so forth have made for me, and then we'll be hunting over some modern soulless Chinese decoys too, because that's what my buddy hunts with. And then it looked like you shot today. You shot mallards, gadwalls. Yep. Yeah. Anything else? 
we shot a spoonie okay a spoonie hen that was kind of wild like we we didn't realize uh we thought she just you know flew off and uh so anyway, we wrapped up and we're heading out and she flew off the dam and flew down so i sent my female her name's kendall uh down after her and uh she's working the area she goes into a just beautiful classic you know bird dog point just points and then she realizes oh hey dad's not going to jump this bird so she jumps at herself and then snatches that spoonie hen with her mouth at awesome, a midair and then brought me the brought me the duck she's uh she's a cool dog we'll hunt with tweety tomorrow which is her son um he is uh almost two he'll be two in march and i can guarantee he will not be as well behaved as she is but you got to take him out and hunt him or they ain't ever going to learn so yeah is he uh is he bad about breaking he he is not steady to shot <laughs> he's not steady to shot but he's not even two yet so yeah 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 this he's this, got a couple more years so he's in his prime yeah 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 He'll be doing um, poodle pointers, and some of the versatile breeds are a little different. You can't run them like a lab. The training is a little more uh, sensitive and less sort of aggressive and takes a period of t- a longer period of time. So he won't be finished until his second year, and he won't really be tuned up, tuned up like how I like it till he's probably three or four and gets, you know, hundreds of birds under his belt. But uh, he's a cool dog, and these things, there ain't no quit. You just send them, and they will search for that duck until they find it. It's bonkers. That's awesome, man. Cool dogs. That's a tool for conservation. Yep. Uh, Get a dog. Well, uh, if folks want to see your artwork uh, or talk to you about uh, some of your linguistic work, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? So, um, Facebook, um, Lokosh, L-O-K-O-S-H. Um, on Instagram, it's also at Lokosh. And then uh, Twitter is Lokosh underscore Saya, which is spelled S-A-Y-A. Lokosh.com's my website. My company email, my tribal email is joshua.henson at chickasaw.net. So any of the art stuff, language stuff, however you want to get a hold of me. Um, I'm pretty active on social media. I'm not like super handy like the youth are, but I like to be on there and sharing. And for me, it's like a visual, uh, sort of, it's like a diary. I like to go back and relive these amazing experiences. I ain't trying to get likes or, you know, whatever. I'm just living my best life and I want to remember it, so... Holler at me. Holler at me. Well, uh, yeah, dude. Hopefully tomorrow we get a three-man limit. I'm feeling it. I think I'm feeling feeling good. And it may be a quick one. We were done this morning by eight. You know, so with you with us, I think we'll... uh, that might, man, that might be good. I got to get back to Little Rock. Yeah, I was going to say, man, we need to get you limited and gone. Uh, Anyway, man, dude, thanks a bunch. Enjoy the conversation. It was awesome. Appreciate it. Yeah, cool cage, man. And... uh, Thanks for listening, folks. Hey, thank you so much for listening all the way through this episode of the Black Duck Revival podcast. As always, it's produced by me, Jonathan Wilkins, and Brian Sachs. Hey, I've noticed there have been some uh, new reviews 
and some uh, some new five star reviews and some new written reviews. And man, thank you so much for that. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, it looks like folks are enjoying the podcast, and I'm sitting on some episodes now, so like some of that stress is is a uh, is off on me. I know that we'll have a we'll have a good winter with some really interesting guests. The next the next one coming up, man, is, is a guy that I've got so much respect for, and I'm, I'm so looking forward to you you guys get into uh, to get introduced to him. But uh, if you want to keep up with me, look, just uh, go to Instagram. It's Black Duck Revival is the, the handle there. Uh, you can also uh, follow me on the website. That's blackduckrevival.com. I've got a bunch. At this point, I've got a bunch of articles and recipes and stuff over at sitkagear.com. So you can go to sitkagear.com, go to the experiences tab and then there, there's i've got articles about turkey hunting and duck hunting and goose hunting uh elk hunting i've got recipes for a lot of those those different critters as well so check that out and uh yeah i'm i'm bebopping around for the rest of the winter i'm gonna get to spend some time here at home waiting on the kid to come and then i'll be uh, go to california to see my friend rue map uh Texas. I'll be down in Texas chasing sandhill cranes in mid-January, and I'm so looking forward to that. So, uh, and then some other trips, doing some local stuff. Got some folks coming up. Uh, hopefully, we'll have enough water, and, uh, enough water that I can I can actually take them hunting. But uh, anyway, folks, thanks so much. Uh, feel free if you have not done so to leave a review, uh, written or just uh, you know the starred reviews. Those help out big time. Tell a friend, tell an enemy, tell an acquaintance about the podcast, and we'll see you next time.